Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 38. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Happy holidays and happy Festivus. Yes, Christmas is coming. Hanukkah is coming. Kwanzaa is coming. But as all you Seinfeld fans know, so is Festivus. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. Yes, yes, Festivus is here. Like this show, and like America, Festivus was born out of anger. But like this show, and like America, Festivus has channeled that anger into positive impact, into change, and into happiness. And in this episode, I have a very special Festivus gift for all you good little boys and girls. After our massive last episode with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, we've got a change of pace. The man himself, the legend, the iconic actor who played George Costanza on Seinfeld, Jason Alexander, is here on this pod to tell us about the true founding story of Festivus. And he'll share amazing stories from an incredible life of laughs, lessons, and activism. In this episode, you'll get a special holiday gift. You'll meet the man behind the character you know so well. You'll hear Jason Alexander explain what it's like to live a life in a world where everyone thinks he's really George Costanza. But you'll also hear about his almost 40 years of entertaining America, from the stage with Cheetah Rivera, to Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts, to voice work on Dora the Explorer, to a video with Nickelback. Jason Alexander's won Tonys, and he's known worldwide. But he's also a committed activist, a patriot, a father, and one of the most entertaining, insightful, and inspiring American success stories you'll ever hear. And yes, even Jason Alexander is angry. But our candid, extended, fun conversation will bring you hope and happiness this holiday. But first, even during Festivus, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Angry Americans have hit the streets in cities all across America, from New York to Phoenix to everywhere in between. More than 600 events all across the country, all calling for Donald Trump's impeachment. They were peaceful. They were patriotic. And like Frank Costanza in his creation of Festivus, these protests were also pretty creative. That little jingle was from a protest in Raleigh, North Carolina. Americans are getting pretty good at this protesting. And that's one upside from three years of President Chaos. They're almost always peaceful, and they've spanned issues ranging from impeachment to the Women's March to the climate strike. 
And those issues are all good reasons to be angry, righteous reasons to be angry. And with the NFL playoffs already on the NORAD tracker, with another debate coming down the chimney tonight, and a massive lump of coal that's impeachment already sitting in our collective American stockings, there are some important issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. Even, and maybe especially, during the holidays. Welcome, newcomers. <laughs> the tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. Yes, we have lots to be angry about. And it starts with impeachment. Here are the introduction of the articles by Joe Novotny, the reading clerk. House calendar number 61, House Resolution 755, resolved that Donald John Trump, President of the United States, is impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, and that the following articles of impeachment be exhibited to the United States Senate. Articles of impeachment exhibited by the House of Representatives of the United States of America in the name of itself and of the people of the United States of America against Donald John Trump, President of the United States of America, in maintenance and support of its impeachment against him for high crimes and misdemeanors. Article 1, Abuse of Power. The Constitution provides that the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment and that the President shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. In his conduct of the office of President of the United States and in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States and, to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, Donald J. Trump has abused the powers of the presidency in that, using the powers of his high office, President Trump solicited the interference of a foreign government, Ukraine, in the 2020 United States presidential election. He did so through a scheme or course of conduct that included soliciting the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations that would benefit his re-election, harm the election prospects of a political opponent, and influence the 2020 United States presidential election to his advantage. President Trump also sought to pressure the government of Ukraine to take these steps by conditioning official United States government acts of significant value to Ukraine on its public announcement of the investigations. President Trump engaged in this scheme or course of conduct for corrupt purposes in pursuit of personal political benefit. In so doing, President Trump used the powers of the presidency in a manner that compromised the national security of the United States and undermined the integrity of the United States' democratic process. He thus ignored and injured the interests of the nation. President Trump engaged in this scheme or course of conduct through the following means. One, President Trump, acting both directly and through his agents within and outside the United States government, corruptly solicited the government of Ukraine to publicly announce investigations into A, a political opponent, former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr., and B, a discredited theory promoted by Russia, alleging that Ukraine, rather than Russia, interfered in the 2016 United States presidential election. Two, with the same corrupt motives, President Trump, acting both directly and through his agents within and outside the United States government, conditioned two official acts on the public announcements that he had requested. 
A, the release of $391 million of United States taxpayer funds that Congress had appropriated on a bipartisan basis for the purpose of providing vital military and security assistance to Ukraine to oppose Russian aggression and which President Trump had ordered suspended, and B, a head of state meeting at the White House, which the president of Ukraine sought to demonstrate continued United States support for the government of Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. Three, faced with the public revelation of his actions, President Trump ultimately released the military and security assistance to the government of Ukraine, but has persisted in openly and corruptly urging and soliciting Ukraine to undertake investigations for his personal political benefit. These actions were consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in United States elections. In all of this, President Trump abused the powers of the presidency by ignoring and injuring national security and other vital national interests to obtain an improper personal political benefit. He has also betrayed the nation by abusing his high office to enlist a foreign power in corrupting democratic elections. Wherefore, President Trump by such conduct has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office, and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Article 2, Obstruction of Congress. The Constitution provides that the House of Representatives shall have the sole power of impeachment and that the President shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. In his conduct of the office of President of the United States and in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of President of the United States and to the best of his ability preserve protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and in violation of his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, Donald J. Trump has directed the unprecedented categorical and indiscriminate defiance of subpoenas issued by the House of Representatives pursuant to its sole power of impeachment. President Trump has abused the powers of the presidency in a manner offensive to and subversive of the Constitution in that the House of Representatives has engaged in an impeachment inquiry focused on President Trump's corrupt solicitation of the government of Ukraine to interfere in the 2020 United States presidential election. As part of this impeachment inquiry, the committees undertaking the investigation served subpoenas seeking documents and testimony deemed vital to the inquiry from various executive branch agencies and offices and current and former officials. In response, without lawful cause or excuse, President Trump directed executive branch agencies, offices, and officials not to comply with those subpoenas. President Trump thus interposed the powers of the presidency against the lawful subpoenas of the House of Representatives and assumed to himself functions and judgments necessary to the exercise of the sole power of impeachment vested by the Constitution in the House of Representatives. President Trump abused the powers of his high office through the following means. One, directing the White House to defy a lawful subpoena by withholding the production of documents sought therein by the committees. Two, directing other executive branch agencies and offices to defy lawful subpoenas and withhold the production of documents and records from the committees. 
in response to which the Department of State, Office of Management and Budget, Department of Energy, and Department of Defense refused to produce a single document or record. Three, directing current and former executive branch officials not to cooperate with the committees in response to which nine administration officials defied subpoenas for testimony, namely John Michael Mick Mulvaney, Robert B. Blair, John A. Eisenberg, Michael Ellis, Preston Walls Griffith, Russell T. Vogt, Michael Duffy, Brian McCormick, and T. Ulrich Breckbuehl. These actions were consistent with President Trump's previous efforts to undermine United States government investigations into foreign interference in United States elections. Through these actions, President Trump sought to arrogate to himself the right to determine the propriety, scope, and nature of an impeachment inquiry into his own conduct, as well as the unilateral prerogative to deny any and all information to the House of Representatives and the exercise of its sole power of impeachment. In the history of the Republic, no president has ever ordered the complete defiance of an impeachment inquiry or sought to obstruct and impede so comprehensively the ability of the House of Representatives to investigate high crimes and misdemeanors. This abuse of office served to cover up the president's own repeated misconduct and to seize and control the power of impeachment and thus to nullify a vital constitutional safeguard vested solely in the House of Representatives. In all of this, President Trump has acted in a manner contrary to his trust as president and subversive of constitutional government to the great prejudice of the cause of law and justice and to the manifest injury of the people of the United States. Wherefore, President Trump, by such conduct, has demonstrated that he will remain a threat to the Constitution if allowed to remain in office and has acted in a manner grossly incompatible with self-governance and the rule of law. President Trump thus warrants impeachment and trial, removal from office, and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. There it is. That's the case for impeaching the president. That's what they voted on. And as I've said before, that's just what they've chosen to focus on now. Give Trump another year, and they'll probably have a few more reasons to impeach him. He's too undisciplined. He's too reckless. He's too selfish. And by next Christmas, we'll probably find a slew of other things he's done that might be worthy of impeachment too. But of course, President Mayhem is not about to take any responsibility for his actions. When he was asked at the White House, do you take any responsibility for the fact that you are about to be impeached? Here's what he said. No, I don't take any. uh, Zero, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, They took a perfect phone call that I had with the president of Ukraine. An absolutely perfect call. You know it. They all know it. Uh, Nothing was said wrong in that call. To impeach the president of the United States for that is a disgrace, and it's a a mark in our country. And I'll tell you what, other presidents in the the future, unless they do something about this, other presidents are going to have to live with this. And every time they do something that's a little bit unpopular, a little bit strong, even if they're 100 percent right, because I've done a great job. When you look at the kind of jobs we've created, when you look at the economy that we've created, when you look at rebuilding the military, taking care of the vets, you just take a look at what we've done with choice, veterans choice, with accountability in the vets, uh, with what we've done to protect our Second Amendment and so many other things. Nobody's done as much as I've done in the first three years. Thank you all very much. And he always plays the vets card. Always. I've flagged this for you before, but every time his back is against the wall, he pulls the vets card. 
he should leave us out of this shit. After the last decade or two, America's veterans have had enough of being caught in the middle of crossfire. But the stage is set. The battle is here. But our national Christmas pageant is going to get blown up by bad Santa, blown up by President Mayhem, and all his friends. The battle is here. And the sides are making their case. And like the principal at the most dysfunctional private school in America, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is in charge. And after holding her fire for so long and building up a pile of snowballs for the last three years, she's finally letting them fly. But very sadly now, our founder's vision of a republic is under threat from actions from the White House. That is why today... As Speaker of the House, I solemnly and sadly open the debate on the impeachment of the President of the United States. If we do not act now, we would be derelict in our duty. It is tragic that the President's reckless actions make impeachment necessary. He gave us no choice. There it is. Speaker Pelosi's partisan, of course. But that doesn't make her wrong. But she did have a choice. She could have waited. She could have done it sooner, but she's made the call. This is the time they're going to press it. Before the winter recess, before they run out of time next year in the legislative session, before Trump can start a new war or something else to change the narrative, this is the moment they've chosen. And they're trying to hit the hole like a running back in the fourth quarter of a state championship game. But every player on this field is not a pro bowler. Most of Congress is like a cast of practice squad arena football league players. And when it's over, some of them might be playing in the penitentiary, like the dudes in the longest yard. What's this? Football treehouse. What the hell's a treehouse? Triad, you have a meatball. Hey, what's this football thing about, man? Crew's getting the team together. Play against who? The gods. <laughs> yep. Some in Congress are just not that bright. To some like Saturday Night Live, impeachment might be the holiday gift that just keeps on giving. It's like a Hanukkah of political nonsense. But instead of eight days, it just keeps going. Tonight is the seventh night of Hanukkah, and here to sing a Hanukkah song is Adam Sandler. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, well, uh, when, when I was a kid, uh, th- th- this time of year always, always made me feel a little left out because uh, uh, in school there were so many Christmas songs and all us Jewish kids had was the song Dreidel, Dreidel, Dreidel. And uh, so uh, I wrote a brand new Hanukkah song for you Jewish kids to sing and I hope you like it. <clears throat> Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah. So much Hanukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have eight crazy nights. <laughs> but when you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. David Lee Roth lights the menorah. So do Kirk Douglas, James Kahn, and the late Dinah Shora. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. 
Paul Newman's half Jewish and Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together, what a fine looking Jew. <laughs> or Jingle Bell Rock cause you can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock both Jewish put on your yarmulke here comes Hanukkah the owner of the Seattle Supersonica celebrate Hanukkah O.J. Simpson not a Jew <laughs> but guess who is Hall of Famer Rod Carew he, he converted <clears throat> We got Ann Landers and her sister, dear Abby. Harrison Ford's a quarter Jewish, not too shabby. <laughs> Some people think that Ebenezer Scrooge is. Well, he's not, but guess who is? All three Stooges. <laughs> oh, boy. So, oh, so many Jews are in. Showbiz, Tom Cruise isn't, but I think his agent is. <laughs> Tell your friend Veronica, it's time to celebrate Hanukkah. I hope I get a harmonica on this lovely, lovely Hanukkah. So drink your gin and tonica, but don't smoke marijuana. If you really, really wanna go, have a happy, 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 happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah is the festival of lights, but Congress sure isn't. It's a place pretty lacking in light and overwhelmed by heat and a place lacking wattage in general. And this holiday impeachment season has been a time when the American people will finally see how overwhelmingly unimpressive most members of Congress are. Enter Arizona Republican Debbie Lesko. Actually, articles of impeachment on the floor of the House of Representatives that if it had not been tabled, you actually would have been voting on the floor of the House of Representatives for articles of impeachment against the president. The one that was on December 6, 2017, was because you didn't think you didn't like that President Trump uh, said something uh, negative about the NFL anthem protest and called a member of Congress wacky, and all nine of you, all nine of you here uh, voted um, against tabling that. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, um, I, with all due respect, if I could just interrupt, uh, I don't think Ms. Scanlon, myself, or Ms. Shalala were members of the House. Oh, 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 this is, I was on the wrong one. I apologize. Thank you for pointing that out to me. That's Representative Lesko trying to deflect for Trump during a rules committee hearing on impeachment. She accused several Democrats of previously voting to bring up an impeachment vote. But then she's informed that several of the members she's attacking weren't in Congress yet. Yep. Impeachment is a time when you'll see how unimpressive many elected leaders are. These are the people running our country or running it into the ground. It's also a time when Republicans and Democrats want to put their strongest voices forward. It's going to be like watching both conventions happen on the same day. They'll both also try to elevate some of their newest faces. And for Dems, that definitely means voices like the young and painfully handsome Joe Kennedy of Massachusetts, making the case for his side. Dear Ellie and James, 
This is a moment that you will read about in your history books. Today, I will vote to impeach the President of the United States. And I want you to know why. He broke our laws. He threatened our security. He abused the highest, most sacred office in our land. I want you to know that it does not feel good. I can't stop thinking about the cost to our country. Not just the impeachable offenses, but the collateral damage of a president who uses power like a weapon against his own people. Erodes our decency, degrades our dignity. I don't yet know how they will tell the story of this era, but I want to tell you the story of this day. Let the record show that today, justice won, that we did our job, that we kept our word, that we stood our sacred ground. Let the record show that we did not let you down. I love you. Listen to mom. Gentlemen's I'll be home soon. Expired. And here's the rebuttal from Vice President Mike Pence. And truthfully, friends, what's happening on Capitol Hill today is a disgrace. From the first day of this administration, Democrats in Washington have been trying to overturn the results of the last election. And they're back at it again today with their partisan impeachment vote. You know, the truth is, they're trying to impeach this president because they know they can't defeat this president. They're trying to run down this president because they know they can't run against our record. They can't run against our results. They're pushing this partisan impeachment because they know they can't stop you from giving President Donald Trump four more years in the White House. And then there was this between Texas Republican Louis Gohmert and New York Democrat Jerry Nadler. The president turning his back on Ukraine, that happened in 2009. Because in 2008, Ukraine invaded Georgia. What happened? Bush put sanctions on Russia to teach them a lesson. What happened after that? Well, in March of 2009, Hillary Clinton was sent over to Russia with a reset button to say... Bush overreacted. We're okay that you invaded Georgia. It was a green light to Russia to invade Ukraine. And what do you do? Oh, yeah, you send blankets and MREs. They can eat and be warm while the Russians are killing them. That is what the Obama administration did. This is a travesty. And we're in big trouble. Because Schumer was right. Now, It's lowered even farther, the bar. It will be used for political battles, and this country's end is now inside. I hope I don't live to see it. This is an outrage. I yield back. Gentleman from New York. I am deeply concerned that any member of the House would spout Russian propaganda on the floor of the House. I now yield one minute to the gentleman from New York, Mr. Higgins. The gentleman from New York is recognized for... The House will come to order. The gentleman from New York is recognized for one minute. Thank you. The House will come to order. The House will come to order. The gentleman from New York is recognized for one minute. Somebody's going to be on the naughty list this year. And damn, this is getting ugly. It's been like watching a giant political snowball fight every day on C-SPAN. 
of a nutcracker. With all the political snowballs flying, it can feel like we're getting whiplash. And the vote finally came. And it sounded like this. On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197, present is one. Article one is adopted. Voting nearly entirely along party lines the House approved two articles of impeachment against President Trump, making him the third president in history to face removal by the Senate. All except two Democrats supported the article on abuse of power, which accused Trump of using the levers of government to corruptly solicit election assistance from Ukraine in the form of investigations to discredit Joe Biden. Republicans were 100% united in opposition. It passed 230 to 197. On the second charge, obstruction of justice, a third Democrat joined Republicans in opposition, and the vote was 229 to 198. And now it's on to a trial in the Senate next year. So 2020 is going to be a doozy. The president has now been impeached in the House. And impeachment is terrible. It's painful. And unfortunately, right now, it's necessary. Sometimes you got to be like Emmett Otter in Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Sometimes you got to put a hole in Ma's wash tub so you can achieve a greater goal. Sometimes you got to make the tough call. Sometimes you got to be Alice Otter and hawk Emmett's tools for some dress fabric. But you got to do it because in the end, it's worth the cost. Dear Ma, I'll be gone all day. I'll explain about the wash tub when I see you late tonight. Love, Emmett. Dear Emmett, I'll be home late tonight, and I'll explain about the tool chest when I see you. Love, Ma. In this season of joy, there should be no joy about this process. It's somber, it's sad, and it's devastatingly serious. And who better to break it down for us than a conscience of America, a constant source of light, the great civil rights leader and Georgia Congressman John Lewis. Madam Speaker, I rise with a heavy heart to support this resolution. When we came to Washington in 1961, to go on the freedom rise, we chose that day. When we came here on August 28, 1963, for the March on Washington, it was joyful. We met with a young president, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. When we came here on August 6, 1965, for the signing of the Voting Rights Act, we were excited, hopeful, We've met with President Lyndon Johnson, but today, this day, we didn't ask for this. This is a sad day. 
It is not a day of joy. Our nation is founded on the principle that we do not have kings, we have presidents, and the Constitution is our compasses. When you see something that is not right, not just, not fair, you have a moral obligation to say something, to do something. Our children and their children will ask us, what did you do? What did you say? For some, this vote may be hard, but we have a mission and a mandate to be on the right side of history. John Lewis stands on the side of what's right. John Lewis always has. In the face of fire hoses, in the face of hatred, in the face of violence, and in the face of corruption, and now in the face of high crimes and misdemeanors. John Lewis is right. And if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to episode 16. It's an entire episode we did on race. And we talked about the inspiration of heroes named Lewis. And we talked to Soledad O'Brien. But we tell the story of John Lewis and why he's so important and why he's so right. And if there's a guy in Congress who I wish could play Santa, it would be John Lewis. He's a man who's genuinely full of joy and generosity. But he's right now. Impeachment is no reason to celebrate. It's not a Christmas present. It's necessary, but it's a victory for no one. It's a massive embarrassment. It's sad. And it's the start of what could be an even darker and more divisive time in our country's history. And of course, the world is watching and our enemies are celebrating. So Democrats think Trump is a liar and he says he's not. And this holiday, we're caught in the middle. You're a big boy. What's your name? And uh, what can I get you for Christmas? Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kid talk. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. Look, I'm not kidding. You're a fake. I'm a fake? Yes. How'd you like to be dead? Huh? (laughs) He's kidding. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. Okay. (gasps) (gasps) He's a monster! He's a fake! That's the chaos we're stuck in right now in America. That's from the movie Elf. But it feels like our real life right now. And until I pulled that clip and really listened to it, I had no idea the kid on Santa's lap was named Paul. Yep, so there's that. And so now, we're all the kids stuck in the middle, watching people who claim to be adults rumble and tumble and fight. We just want to have a Merry Christmas. We just want to get our official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. That's all we want, just like Ralphie. But instead, the holiday is being destroyed all around us. Fake Santa, in this case Trump, is being revealed. The beard is being snatched off. And he ain't happy about it. So instead of destroying Gimbel's department store, Trump is destroying the Constitution. Congress, our body politic, he's encouraging hate and attempting to destroy the civility in America. Yep, that's this week in holiday time impeachment, people. Ho, ho, ho. 
but it's all plenty of reason to be angry and to stay vigilant this holiday. And as we all gather around the Festivus pole, there are a few good little boys and girls who hope the only thing Santa will bring them for Christmas is a bump in the polls big enough to land on the next debate stage or help them win in Iowa. Schools are about to close for the holidays, but just like the holidays seem to start earlier and surround us more and more every year, so does the 2020 race for the White House. The snow is here now, and just like Rocky, the candidates are trudging through the white stuff to get to the ring for the big final fight. They're in Iowa, and they're in New Hampshire, crisscrossing the country like a drunken Rudolph without a GPS. Who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down? Who's getting a new spot on the debate stage for Christmas? And who's left out in the cold and broadcasting on their Facebook page, hoping Tucker Carlson calls? Here's what you need to know. The airing of grievances will continue this December, as yet another Democratic debate is happening. And spoiler alert, there's no Thursday night NFL football anymore, so the debates will be the only real clash we have to watch until Saturday NFL games start up this weekend, which means you know the end of the year is coming. So soon, we'll be down to 12 teams that make up the NFL playoffs. Yep, the final 12. And only the final seven candidates will be on the debate stage in Los Angeles. Instead of Thursday night football, we'll have Thursday night presidential debates. Not nearly as exciting, and not nearly as colorful. Literally. These are the candidates who made the December debate. Former Vice President Joe Biden, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, California billionaire Tom Steyer, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and entrepreneur Andrew Yang. And it's a white Christmas for the Democrats. The only person in that lineup that's not white is Andrew Yang. For all the talk from the Democrats about diversity, that lineup is whiter than BYU. And it's definitely whiter than the NFL. It's even whiter than the NHL nowadays. And so although the primary candidates for Democrats started out as the most diverse crew in history, the remaining frontrunners are all white which has prompted some righteous anger about whether the primary schedule is creating an institutional barrier that hurts candidates and voters of color. Iowa and New Hampshire and the dominance of those two states definitely hurt candidates of color and definitely discount voters of color. And one of the candidates that didn't make the stage, Julian Castro, makes a pretty good argument about it. I actually believe that, um, that we do need to change uh, the order of the states, because I don't believe that uh, that we're the same country we were in 1972. That's when Iowa first held its caucus first. And by the time we have the next presidential election in 2024, it'll have been more than 50 years since 1972. Our country has changed a lot in those 50 years. Uh, the Democratic Party has changed a lot. What I really appreciate about Iowans and the folks in New Hampshire is that they take this process very seriously. Mm -hmm. They vet the candidates, they show up at town halls, they give people a good hearing. At the same time, demographically, it's not reflective of the United States as a whole, certainly not reflective of the Democratic Party, and I believe that other states should have their chance. Uh, so yes, of course, we need to find other states. Uh, and that doesn't mean that Iowa and New Hampshire can't still play an important role, right. but I don't believe that forever we should be married to Iowa and New Hampshire going first. And that's just the truth of the way that I see it. 
Look, I think he's right. It's yet another reason I have a problem with the primary process and with the two parties. It's another reason I'm an independent. I reject a process that lets two very small, very rural, very homogenous states determine the future of a country as diverse and dynamic as ours. I got nothing against Iowa and New Hampshire specifically, but I see more people in the subway on a given day in New York than will vote in the Iowa caucuses next year. In 2016, 171,000 people participated in the 2016 Iowa Democratic caucuses. 171,000. It's only about double the number of people who will attend the Rose Bowl next month, which will be in Pasadena, of course, just outside LA, one of the most diverse places in the world. And that's where the debate is happening, in LA. It's Christmas in LA. The debate is in Los Angeles, and this is the best show in town until the Lakers and Clippers clash, hopefully in the playoffs. PBS NewsHour has the ball this time, and that leaves me a bit more hopeful this holiday, especially Judy Woodruff, who I think is one of the best there is. She'll be like Santa's little helper in getting us all a fair and hard-hitting debate. And we got word this week that there will be more. Oh yes, just in time for the holidays, Santa has a new gift for all you political junkies. No, it's not a Red Ryder BB gun. No, it's not a Barbie dream house. It's not a new Tesla Cybertruck. It's not a Peloton bike. Nope, it's none of those things. Go ahead and open it. Oh, isn't that sweet? Ralph, go upstairs and try it on. I don't want to. Go upstairs right now and try on that present. She went to all that trouble to make it. Now go on. Yes, it's so sweet. Aunt Clara got you something very special. Four new debates. Four of them. Yep, that's right. Just for you. Tuesday, January 14th, there'll be a debate in Des Moines, hosted by CNN and the Des Moines Register. Monday, February 3rd, that's going to be the Iowa caucuses. Then next up, Friday, February 7th, a debate in Manchester, New Hampshire, hosted by ABC News, WMUR, and Apple News. Then the New Hampshire primary happens on February 11th. The next debate, February 19th, a Wednesday in Las Vegas, hosted by NBC News, MSNBC News, and the Nevada Independent. Then the Nevada Democratic Caucuses happen on February 22nd. And finally, on Tuesday, February 25th, a debate in Charleston, South Carolina, hosted by CBS News, the Congressional Black Caucus Institute, and Twitter. Then, after all that, Saturday, February 29th, the South Carolina Democratic Primary. So yes, happy holidays, angry Americans. You're getting four new debates next year, just in time for the end of football season. Now, I would have liked to have seen PBS or C-SPAN on that list, but I'm also not a Democrat. But stakes is high, and you get four debates for Christmas. That means four more fights are coming. Four more fights for America, just in time for Christmas. So, I just want to say one thing to my kid who should be home sleeping. Yep. Remember, Rocky beat Drago on Christmas. It was Christmas. So Merry Christmas, kids. Speaking of fighting, the fight for the future of America and to reclaim what patriotism means in this country is happening every day. It's happening in Washington. It's happening in the media. It's happening on Twitter. And it's also happening for real in the octagon. 
So last week, Kamaru Usman fought Colby Covington for the UFC Welterweight Championship in Las Vegas. And the buildup was more than just a fight. It was about the fights that are happening at dinner tables, on cable news networks, and in our politics every day. It was a black immigrant versus a white Trump supporter, a guy who wore a Make America Great Again hat into the octagon. Colby Covington loves Trump. He actually talks about him all the time. And after he won the belt a couple months ago, this is what he said. First off, Joe Rogan, all I want to say is this is a real championship belt. I'm going to do what a real American should do. I'm bringing this belt to the White House and I'm putting it on Donald Trump's desk. And that's what he did. He brought the belt to the White House where President Trump tweeted a picture of them together. Covington also attacked the Philadelphia Eagles and the Golden State Warriors and Megan Rapino for criticizing the president. He says they should just leave the country. And here's Covington in an interview with Sports Illustrated. You've obviously been very vocal in support of the, the president. You've tweeted stuff that some people have taken offense to. And, and I know a lot of people might say it's just a piece of apparel or, you know, it's in support of, of the current administration. But there are plenty who are watching, and, and I would count myself amongst them, who view it as a, a symbol of hate. You obviously have to be aware of that. Is, is that why you wear it? Because it bothers people? Um, I'm aware that, you know, Donald Trump's doing great things for this country. Unemployment's lower than it's been since the 60s. You know, our economy's booming. You know, he loves our country. He loves the troops and he loves first responders. So, you know, I I love the Trump family and anybody that has anything different, they can come say it to my face. Before the fight, Covington posted a message of support from Trump's sons and said, thank you for the support, Donald J. Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. Tonight, we make fighting great again. This one's for the troops and the Trumps. He capitalized the troops and the Trumps. He also pledged to bring the title to the White House after his victory. So Covington was talking a lot of shit, and he was talking a lot about Trump. And then the fight came, and this happened. Him pressing, him landing. Him trying to pull Usman knocked his ass out. He literally broke his jaw in the third round and then knocked him out. And after the fight, Usman underscored how big the stakes were for this fight and how it was about much more than just mixed martial arts. What are you talking about? It was, it was chanting USA for me. Let's be honest. I've said it time and time again. I'm more American than him. You know, I am what it means to be an American. You know, I'm an immigrant that come here and work my ass off tirelessly to get to the top, and I'm still prevailing. And so that's what it means to be an American. It's not necessarily, oh, just because you're born here, you feel privileged is what it means to be an American. No, I told him, none of these guys work harder than me. That's what it means to be an American. I work my ass off, and I'm gonna continue to work my ass off, and, and, and obviously with good integrity, I don't have to walk around like a punk and say certain things and, and abuse the whole country or abuse the whole world and, and talk about people and, and, and religions and things like that. I don't have to, you know. I'm going to walk with integrity because at the end of the day, I want everyone that's watching me, every eye that's on me to look at me and say, you know what, that's what we want to be. That's the example that we like. And so, you know, I'm more American than him. So when they were chanting USA, 
that was you damn sure better believe that was because of me. Usman made a statement, not just about what kind of fighter he is, but what kind of American he is. And he made a statement about what true American exceptionalism is supposed to be about. Not looking down on others, not hating others, not shitting on immigrants, but about working hard and being compassionate and inspiring others. And that's what it's all about. It was an inspiring win by an inspiring American and a gift of holiday inspiration to people all across America and all across the world. It was like a scene out of the movies. And this holiday, like every holiday, my favorite Christmas movie is not Die Hard. It's not Home Alone. It's always Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Yep, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. It's a story of community and hard work, a story about generosity and about having the courage to step on stage and be brave enough to take a chance and share your talent and share your love. That's what Alice Otter does and what she teaches her son Emmett to do through her example. Just like Usman's, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is a story about hope and about hard work and about love. And that's the story of our guest this week. Every conversation on this show has been with someone who shaped America's past, is impacting America's present, and is driving America's future. And for almost an entire generation, Jason Alexander has been a part of our lives and a part of representing America to the world. Jason was born in 1959 in Newark, New Jersey, and he's been bringing talent, love, and positivity ever since. The son of Jewish parents, his mother was a nurse, and his dad, Alexander B. Greenspan, was an accounting manager, whose first name Jason later borrowed to create his stage name. He went to public high school in New Jersey and Boston University for college, and rose to become an entertainment phenomenon. He's grown to be a master of all entertainment, stage, screen, TV, and beyond. Of course, he's best known for his role as George Costanza in maybe the greatest television series of all time, Seinfeld. For that role, he was nominated for seven consecutive Primetime Emmy Awards and three Golden Globes. But in 1989, he won the Tony Award as Best Leading Actor in a Musical. But beyond all that, he's a truly inspiring and fascinating man. He's an accomplished magician and was named Magician of the Year by the Academy of Magical Arts Parlor for his performance at the legendary Magic Castle in Los Angeles. He's also a killer poker player. He won Bravo's Celebrity Poker Showdown, winning the final table of the eighth season. He won 500 grand for the charity of his choice, the United Way of America. He won 500 grand for the charity of his choice, and he chose the United Way of America to help benefit the New Orleans area. He's played in the World Series of Poker main event and on NBC's Poker After Dark. Now, you could see him on a TV screen almost every night in America, as Seinfeld reruns will show forever. But he's also in the new smash hit, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, on Amazon Prime. Jason Alexander's defined American culture and entertainment for decades. And all the while, he's been deeply committed to his craft, but also to his family and to his country. He's raised money for charities. He's fought for causes and for candidates. And when his own sister was struck with a devastating disease, he fought for her and for others like her fighting the same disease. He's a patriot in the truest sense of the word, and a true modern Renaissance man. There are few people you'll ever meet who've had a more interesting life than Jason, and few that are more humble, 
more generous, and more insightful. If you've watched him, you love him. And maybe you feel like you know him, but you really don't. You know his characters. And in this episode, you'll learn that the man behind the characters is even more amazing. You'll love him, you'll respect him, and you'll admire him even more. He represents the best of what a truly great American artist can be. And he's an ambassador for America to the world at a time when we badly need more like him. This interview is extended with no commercials and no edits. It's one of the most candid and extended interviews he's ever done. Too much of what you've seen over the years with Jason Alexander has been interrupted by a commercial or by his amazing ability to let the spotlight shine on others. But in this episode, it's all Jason. It's a true insight into America, into ourselves, into our culture, and what it means to be American. He's also a lesson in how to work hard and make it in America, and also how to treat your work, your country, and other people. It's a perfect holiday conversation. And just for you, in the spirit of Festivus, this episode is breaking the rules of the holidays, fighting the commercialism of it all, and bringing it back to the basics with a holiday fireside chat with one of the true icons of American entertainment and culture. Festivus has four main components, and coincidentally, so does this show. It's a Festivus poll of integrity. This holiday season, if you're looking for something for the rest of us, your search might end up here, at the Wagner Company's factory in Milwaukee. They normally make aluminum rails for staircases, but now they're also the leading manufacturer of Festivus poles. It's an airing of grievances of information. It's a Festivus dinner of impact. And it's a feat of strength of inspiration. Yep, it's Festivus, people. Festivus for the rest of us. And in this episode, it's a Festivus miracle of good content. We've all had a hard year. But despite the challenges, we've been good little boys and girls. And we've all landed on the nice list. And Santa and Frank Costanza and the elf on the shelf, they've all been watching. And they're here to reward you with a one-of-a-kind conversation with a very important, truly iconic, and exceptionally inspiring American. Close your eyes and your ears. Don't peek. Don't peek. You ready? You ready? Okay, open them. Welcome to Angry Americans. Episode 38. When you meet somebody that don't like soul food, they still got a soul. And it don't mean that you got no rhythm if you don't like rock and roll. But if you taste like mine, you like cider, not wine, and you very favorite thing to do. Let's get a pretty girl dancing to junk band music. And I miss them on the barbecue. Ladies and gentlemen, angry Americans around the country and around the world, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Festivus. We have an incredibly special guest today joining us that I am absolutely thrilled to have on the mic with us. The great and powerful Jason Alexander. Oh, is wow. Here like Oz. You gave me the Oz introduction. You That's des- fantastic. You, you deserve it. God bless. You know, Oz was a total sham. You remember that, of course. I I, I do, but you're also, you're this mysterious and powerful voice. Sure. And behind curtains, often. I've never never had anyone describe me as either mysterious or powerful. You are really elevating me to a place that 
I have no business going. I think entirely <laughs> appropriately. I mean, so every interview we do is with an iconic, important, inspiring American. Uh-huh. And you check all those boxes in a huge way. And well, you're very kind. Delusional, I, but kind. That might be. It might be. I mean, we're now 38 episodes <laughs> I don't episodes even think I qualify in. for that in my own home. No, but, you yeah. absolutely do. Because, I mean, you know, I do research in advance of every interview, every conversation. I prefer to call them conversations sure. rather than interviews. And just looking at how many different things you've done is extraordinary. It really, really is. Yeah. But before we go too far into that, sure. we were talking before we got here. When you and I first met, I think it was like over a decade ago. Easily. In Los Angeles. We were there for an event that was benefiting IAVA, the mm-hmm. veterans group that I ran. And you right. were there. I think Jerry Seinfeld may have been there also. I'm familiar with him. Yes. It's possible. And, I, and, and basically, it was, a, it was, a, uh, it was a, a corporate event for a piece of technology that is now obsolete. Right. <laughs> That's how long <laughs> I've been doing this. And it, but it was a handheld piece of technology. Yeah. And the company did, uh, they, it had a stylus. It did. Right. We were, but we met there and it was, it was a strange and beautiful event in that, you know, they brought in some celebrities and they brought in some veterans and it rained in Los Angeles and we were outside and, and I got to meet you. And we hung out. We and did. I said, if I can be helpful, let me know. And then we, we've sort of danced around each other ever since. That's right. And yeah. you've been very generous in uh, your support for me and for IAVA and for many causes. And, oh, and I want to get into that. But it was also one of those events, I've, you know, you must have had kind of a Forrest Gump life where you wake up at times, you're like, how did I get at this spot? Oh, yeah. Right? And that yeah. was one of those moments where I'm in the rain in LA. It was still kind of early in my activism. And I'm hanging out with you. And I'm just like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, I, I go through life like that. I always <laughs> find myself in rooms going, they're going to turn around any minute now and go, excuse me, sir, you, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I, I'm always the little, you know, Jewish kid from New Jersey. I don't know how I stumbled into the life that I've become a part of. It, it's, and I never, I never quite feel like I'm supposed to be there. Um, I, I, like, oh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was um, uh, inducted into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. I wanted to ask you about that because I and, watched it. And they said, you know, we'd really love a celebrity to do the uh, inducting. And I went, well, you're, you're shit out of luck because I'm not really friendly with those people. They go, Jerry? I go, yeah, we're not really friends. I, I, you know, and also, he's not going to Jersey to right. do this for me. So, um Brian, William, Brian Williams and Bon Jovi were unavailable. They were unavailable. <laughs> Springsteen, you know, yeah. asshole. He was supposed to, you know. <laughs> and Chris Christie's not a real celebrity. Well, and we went to the same high school. You did? Yeah. I didn't know him. At the same years, time? But no, mm-hmm. he was behind me, years behind me. But was was I, I have to take that off ramp and talk about that. Was, yeah. was there a legend of Chris Christie in your high school? No, uh, I was unaware of him back then. Uh, like I said, I think he, I, I was probably uh, an exiting senior as he was coming in as a freshman. Um but I, I may have, I may have known his name. I grew up mostly. I did high school in Livingston, New Jersey, and Livingston was like a sixty percent Italian, forty percent Jewish community. And it, for some reason, it, it it had a fair amount of retired mafia folk there. So you just didn't screw around with the Italian kids because you never knew who was a made man. You know, he's just <laughs> and uh, and Chris used to, you know, kind of hang with those kids from what I understand. So was he like running around pushing people in lockers? Or I, what was he I, doing? I don't know. I know he was on the football team and we had we when I was there, we were the I think we were the number one football team in the state. But he's a Cowboys fan, yeah, I, who knows? which is so fucked up. Like, who 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 can be self respecting? Not saying he's from, wise, right? Just, just because true. he went to my school true, doesn't true, mean he's true. True, you don't you don't claim him. I think any more than New Jersey does lately. That's why he's hanging out with Jerry Jones at exactly. Cowboys games, right? Yeah, exactly. But but 
you're at the New Jersey Hall of Fame. Yeah. Being inducted. Sure. I mean, I, I think looking from the outside, part of why you've been so successful is because you don't take for granted that you should be there. You seem to be. I, and I don't take most, it seriously. Yeah. I, I find it very hard to take this stuff seriously. I remember when, you know, the, the eight times I've lost the Emmy Award, but every time I was in the room, I go, wow, somebody really messed up. I mean, it just, it just doesn't feel because none of this was what I fantasized about when I was a kid, when I knew I wanted to be an actor, which happened around when I was 12 or 13 years old. But my fantasy was all about trying somehow to get to New York city and work on Broadway. Well, you don't have, have any fantasies of celebrity and glitter and tinsel when you, when that's your goal. And so, uh, everything else that happened is just, it wasn't even in my imagination. So I just, I used to watch that stuff on TV and go, oh, that's just silly. That's silliness. That's not real showbiz. And, and you told when you, during your induction, I guess it's an induction. Yeah. Right. Um, you talked about some of your favorite things about New Jersey, New Jersey yeah. which was so authentic. Yeah. It was so real. Yeah. You talked about Seaside Heights. Yeah. And you talked about so many things. Like, I grew up in New York, but I would go to the Jersey Shore. You know, that Everybody was like an is. exotic locale for us yeah. was New Jersey, sure. was to go down to the white. I remember being, I think, 16 or 17 and being old enough to drive. And the guys were like, where are we going to go? Jersey Shore. Yeah. We're going to Jersey Absolutely. Shore. It was like that or Atlantic City. The- and you always knew the guys that grew up in New Jersey because the phrase would be down to Shore. Down, down the show. Let's go down the show. Down the show. And that was, oh yeah, you're from Jersey. <laughs> I, I was not that aware. Like that was like the extent of my distance of, 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 of travel at that point in my life when I was, when I was 16, but you did, you know, to come full circle, Jason, you won a Tony. I did. And that was actually a bit of a mind blower because that was when I was a kid, that was the ultimate thing. I thought, oh, if I get to Broadway, like maybe I'll be 30, 40, something like that boy, wouldn't it be great if by the time I'm ready to end my career, I did something that would win a Tony Award? Because I thought that was that was the thing. And I got it when I was 29. And it kind of messed me up a little bit because yeah. I went, wow, I don't know what to dream about anymore. It also, I talk about this sometimes with student actors. It it The fantasy was you would get that thing, which would mark somewhere you had gotten to in life, and everything would change. You would know what success is. You'd know what happiness is. You'd know, you would just be a different person. And I went to bed that night with my wife and she said, how do you feel? And I quoted her a line from the musical Pippin and she knew exactly what I was talking about. So Pippin is basically a story about a young man who feels that he's got extraordinary gifts and he doesn't, he doesn't know where to put them. And so th- this band of players lead him through politics and war and love and rum- and all these things to try on. And at the end of the war section, the the leading player says to him, how do you feel? And he says, I thought there'd be more plumes. And I got in bed with my wife that night. She said, how do you feel? And I said, I, I thought there'd be more plumes. <laughs> so it didn't change you. And it wasn't everything. It was great. I would have been really unhappy had it not come my way. But it also, I was the same guy and the world was exactly the same as it was the minute before I, they handed me the thing. And, and it was a big life lesson. And it's not like hitting the lottery, right? Because Broadway, no. my wife has worked in entertainment for decades and, and I've kind of learned what makes people money and what people doesn't and what doesn't. Yeah. Right. And, and stage is, is so much for the love. Yeah. You know, right? I mean, you can make a, a, a good living in the theater in New York, but it, it also necessitates most of the time that you live in New York, yeah. which, which wipes out the kind of money that you can make on Broadway it, to live in New York city these days. 
you need to make an extraordinary income. And there are not really extraordinary incomes in New York. You, you, can, you can make a decent living doing eight a week, but it's, not, it's by no means glamorous. From the outside, I really view you, Jason, as a great American success story. You know, a guy who came from humble roots, yeah. who worked his ass off, yeah. who had dreams, got to a really uh, impactful place, and has used that platform now in a lot of powerful ways as best you can to to help other people. But you've been, it looks like you've been grinding, right? And and I would I was hoping you could share what it's like. Uh, you know, looking back in your earlier days when you were in your twenties and you were struggling to crank it out, right, mm-hmm. and to and to grit through it. You you mentioned Broadway. I was looking back on um, a part in Seinfeld where you have this romance with Marissa Tomei, mm-hmm. and Marissa's a friend. I've been lucky enough and honored enough to know yeah. her, and she just finished a run on Broadway doing the Rose Tattoo, right? And she's cranking. Like that is a hard yeah. job. I mean, it's a great job, right? I mean, I'm sure none of you would complain, but the physical demands, the emotional demands of of doing it over mm-hmm. and over again for a really intense period of time. What what is that like? And and what did you learn? Like going back to your Jersey roots, right? What did you learn about the work ethic part of the job that probably transcends your yeah. your craft? I, so the the cool thing is is that my Broadway career was defined by the first two shows that I did. Um, and the first one was a unbelievably important, um, historic flop. Um, it was a, a, a musical called Merrily We Roll Along. And it was historic because it was the, the team that created it was the same team that created Company, which was Sure. changed the Broadway theater. So it's Stephen Sondheim, Harold Prince, and George Firth. And it was their first collaboration together again since Company, um, a, a musical based on the Kaufman and Hart play. Well, Kaufman and Hart are theater royalty. These guys are theater you know, gods. And I become a part of this thing, and I watch them not be able to get there. I watch them not succeed. And it was an, an unbelievable education because of how hard they had to work. Had it all gone smoothly and been a huge success, I would have learned less than if I saw them struggle and fail. And it it taught me many things. It taught me about work ethic because they kept coming at it and coming at it, chucking out an old idea, radically trying a new idea. Um, and the fact that these, these guys who were more successful, they were successful beyond anyone's dreams in the theater. Every time they got up to do it, it it didn't matter how good the last one was. You're only as good as the one you're working on. So that was great. And then the next Broadway show I did was a thing called The Rink. Also a small musical. Um, and it had two extraordinarily big female stars, Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli. And it was Cheetah's work ethic and Cheetah's ego in the business that made me go, okay, when I grow up, I would like to be Cheetah Rivera mm-hmm. because she worked every day like a dog. I mean, she had to carry that show. The show was written by Candor and Ebb to win her a Tony Award, which it did do, but it was her show. And then they cast Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. And the story became Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. And Cheetah loved her supported her. Liza got very ill during that. She went into Betty Ford during our mm-hmm. run. 
But Cheetah's support of her and love of her and care for her and care for everybody else in that show. There was, there's a story I always tell about who Cheetah Rivera is. So there was a policy where if Liza missed a performance, the audience could get a refund. Uh, they didn't have to stay. And there was one performance that Liza was out. And I guess the stage manager went to Cheetah Rivera and said, Cheetah, I mean, it's totally up to you, but there's, there's maybe a hundred people in the audience. I mean, it's really an empty house. And Cheetah, the first thing she said was, because there were six men, six of us in the show. She said, if we don't do this performance, will the boys lose an eighth of their salary? And they said, yeah, if we don't do the show, yeah. So she called us into her dressing room and said, here's the situation. There's a hundred people out there. You know, what, if you want to do it, let's do it. I don't want you guys to lose any money. And Liza has an understudy and we'll make it like a big rehearsal for her understudy. You know, it'd be a nice opportunity for her and we'll go out and we'll have fun and we'll be silly about it, you know, cause it's ridiculous doing a Broadway show for a hundred people. Yeah. And we all said, oh, so that alone would have been enough to just go, oh my God, she's amazing. Her first thought is about her six little, but then she said to us, and while we're having a great time, just remember guys, the hundred people that stayed, stayed, give them the show. Don't, don't do something to their expense. They want to see our show, give them our show. And I went, oh my God, that is what a professional thinks. That's how they act. And she became my role model. So the work ethic that I've tried to maintain, how I treat people that I work with and how I think about my responsibility to the people that hire me and the people that come to see me is pretty much based on what I saw those guys in Merrily and, and, and she to do. And I, I grew from that. What an incredible gift oh, to amazing. be around her. Amazing. And to have that kind of mentorship and the example of her uh, leadership, amazing. right? Yeah. And it's such an, a, a, a groundbreaking time, right? And I was 24 when we did that show. So it was really, I was right at that place where I could really absorb and learn and see. And I was learning how to be a, a working professional, you know? Wow. And you, so you've been, you know, kind of the ultimate example of, of an artist, I think, who goes uptown, downtown, everywhere in between, right? From the biggest television show maybe of all time, right sure. to small plays and yeah, still giving back to your community and remembering your roots of where you sure. came from in New Jersey and the Jersey shore and the food you ate and the people you knew and the high school you went to. But Jason Alexander, when you were growing up, what was your first car? So it wasn't my first car. It was the first car I was allowed to drive around. And my dad went through cars like shit through a goose, but he had, <laughs> he loved this. I think, well, so I started driving in 1976, 77. It must have been like a 1972 Chevy Impala. And that was the car he allowed me to drive. It was like this turd brown Chevy Impala. I have some memory of some sort of fin-like tail, tail light thing. Yeah. And my dad had a funny habit. And I, I've always loved it. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll adopt that someday. But my dad would... Um, Let's tell you everything you need to know about my dad. So he'd buy a new car and he'd call all his friends and go, stand outside your house. I'm driving by. I want you to see the car. And he'd drive around and he'd show off his brand new car to all his friends. Then he'd bring it home. He'd take a ball peen hammer. He'd look for a spot, not too obvious, but not too hidden and put a ding in it. And he'd go, all right, curses off. 
curses off. Wow. And now if he was in a parking lot in the mall and somebody hit him, he was like, eh, I was already dinged. So, wow. <laughs> so he just, he did not want it to be precious beyond that first day. Wow. And, uh, and so that's my relationship with cars. I really <laughs> give a crap about them. They just get me from here to there. Jerry, wow. Jerry Seinfeld, late in our run, would always make fun of me because I always had crappy cars. I mean, I just, I've never owned a, you know, a luxury car. And he said, I'm going to get you a Porsche. I'm going to get you a Porsche. <laughs> and I said, please don't. You're, you'd be throwing your money away. You want to give me the money? I'll yeah, take the, yeah, I'll take yeah, the cash yeah, yeah, gift. Yeah, yeah. Please don't buy me a Porsche because, A, I won't know how to drive it. I can't drive a stick. You will only buy a stick because he only drives cars that you really drive. And, um, so they just they don't mean so he didn't buy you the car he did not so was there ever a discussion I feel like this could be an entire Seinfeld episode was there a discussion between you and Jerry about whether or not it's Porsche or Porsche you're, you're uh, a man probably is. I, may, I may be coach. saying it wrong I don't know for That's some I reason asked, I, I, now he's gonna watch I'll get an email going you idiot I, I never said <laughs> I don't that. know I'm asking um, I, I, my memories he said Porsche but I could be wrong he certainly, he would know. He would know. Because he has a whole shit ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you you have, um, you know, had this extraordinary career, Jason, where you've also, you know, flexed so many, you're, you're, you're the, I, in my view, kind of the ultimate multi-sport athlete. <laughs> you, you've done uh, feature movies, you've done sitcoms, you've done stage, you've done a ton of work on voiceover. Right, like incredible yeah, animation, animation, voice, voice work, which yeah, is really, yeah. really extraordinary. And so, there's, I think, a sense that um, you're, you've been everywhere. You're part of our life. Like, I don't remember a life in America without your presence. <laughs> and really, right? My, well, bless your heart. My, you're my, young. <laughs> my wife, well, and my wife will always remember you as the guy who was the asshole in Pretty Woman. Yeah. Well, right? Yeah, a lot of women and, uh, and have, hold that <laughs> image of That's me. difficult, right? Yeah. It was a it was a tricky year when that movie came out because I was was it? fairly uh, as a national presence. I mean, you might have seen me on a commercial, but you wouldn't have known my name. And Seinfeld didn't happen before that. So suddenly, I'm in this phenomena movie, and I'm you know the guy that tried to rape Julia Roberts, right? And women, I would walk down the streets of New York, and I could see what I called the the pretty woman stare. A woman would spot me from a half a block away and the fire in her eyes would burn into my head. And many is the time I, a lady would come up to me and say, I don't like you. And oh I, I had one woman come up and hit me. I had a woman spit at me. And I just went, yeah, I, listen, I swear to you, never touched her. It's <laughs> it's all movie magic, you know, where it looks like I hit her. I missed by six inches, you know. Wow. Um, but it was, nobody knew me. So right. they just thought, he really is a jerk. That, right. that man is really a bad man. But but a testament to your acting It was a chops. testament, I guess, to acting. It was also yeah. to Gary Marshall's editing because <laughs> Gary, and I tell the story all the time, Gary Marshall was making that movie on the fly. That movie on paper was substantially different from the movie everybody sees. And Gary made it up in his head. And so we did multiple takes of things so many different ways that my character could have come off completely silly, lightweight, buffoon, um, you know, just a guy you never take seriously, not a threat. Uh, I think we did one take of that scene with Julia where I, I went to put a hand on her leg and then she beats the hell out of me. He thought mm. that might be an interesting mm. variation. So he created the final impression in the editing room and, and he made me a, a bit of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But you know, now then you evolve into lovable characters, compelling character, familiar characters, sure. but you also have um, been an advocate 
you I met you because you care about causes and you've been active in um the Middle East peace yeah. endeavors, right? Yeah. And I, I would love to give you an opportunity. Solved it, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but you worked with a group called One Voice, mm -hmm. and then you've been an advocate um, for a relatively little known, is it a skin disease? Is that how you, is it? It's can actually you, can an you autoimmune disease. That, yeah. Can you please ex yeah. explain, if you can, how you got into those pieces of activism? And it's much more than that. Sure. Well, scleroderma but, was, a, was a road I, I would have been happy to avoid. Um, I, I have uh, half siblings. My, my, my dad was a widower and had two children with his first wife. And then uh, I met my mother and I'm, I'm my mother's only child. So my half siblings, uh, my brother was 20 years older than me. And my sister was 12 years older than me. And my sister's mother, my dad's first wife, uh, died of scleroderma. And unfortunately my sister inherited the gene for it. Right. So scleroderma is still a fairly little known. I mean, it's not, it's not on the tip of anybody's tongue, including right. the medical profession. But scleroderma is an autoimmune uh, disease in the same world as, as lupus. And when you get it, what it does is it makes your body overproduce collagen. Uh, and, you know, collagen, you hear about it in, in cosmetic products all the time. A little bit of it is a really good thing. It tightens the skin and kind of gets rid of wrinkles and whatnot. When you overproduce it, um, a lot of patients that have scleroderma almost look mummified. They, it has stretched their skin so much that they oftentimes can't close their mouths. They can't quite close their eyes. They can't use their joints because the skin has become so taut around the joints that, that it has disabled the joints. So externally, it's, it's not easy to deal with. But the, the devastating parts are that collagen can collect in any part of your vital system or vital organ. If it gets into your heart, if it gets into your lungs, if it gets into your liver, it's a death sentence. For my sister, lived with it for a very long time. She was diagnosed with it somewhere in her 30s, and she lived to almost 65 before she passed away uh, about four or five years ago. Um, and for, for Karen, it was in her digestive system. So she absorbed maybe a tenth of the nutrition that she needed from food, and eventually it, it eradicated her digestive system altogether. Um, there is no cure for it. Uh, even treating it, you know, with some sort of just symptom by symptom, there's some things that they can do that are helpful, but largely you you suffer through it. Um, when my sister got it, there were some scattered small organizations. There was a support organization. There was a research organization, um, and their biggest obstacle was that nobody was really aware of this disease. So my sister came to me and she said, would you ever be willing to, you know, try and be part of the awareness program? And I said, you're really asking the wrong person. It's not what I be willing. It's would you be willing? Because the story is going to be you. Right. So you've got to be willing to get out there. Now, my sister didn't have a lot of the external. Uh, if you looked at her, she didn't look like a, a scleroderma patient. She didn't have that, that um, the, the deformities that it can cause. But I said, you're going to have to get out of there and talk about your life and you're going to have to talk about the disease and you're going to have to talk about what's horrible about it. And, you know, she was a pretty private person. And so that was a very bonding experience. She made the commitment to do that and we got out there and, and we certainly, Bob Saget also lost a sister to, to scleroderma. So he's been a major advocate and he and I have crossed paths on it many times. But, um, you know, unfortunately, the awareness of it is much greater. And I think we've, we've probably enabled 
um, support foundations for, for people and families that are working through it. Uh, and that's great, but I, I don't think we've managed to secure much more by way of funding, and we certainly have not gotten any closer to a cure. The cure is probably a genetic one when, when they mm. isolate the right mm. gene and are able to address it that way. But This is in part why I wanted to ask you about it, because I didn't know about scleroderma yeah. until I was preparing for this and reading about your activism and, and learning about it. And I'm in the activist world. Yeah. I'm in you know most of the medical stuff causes I've seen. Right. And you personally are putting this mm. on the map in a very powerful and personal and important way. Yeah. And I think that, yeah. that that's part of why I was excited to talk to you is because I think you're, you know, you've been kind of below the radar making a difference and using your platform to, to make a real difference on a cause that I honestly and many others, people li- listening to this podcast right now probably never heard of that before. And well, will, it's will forever also, be changed by it. You know, one of the reasons I think people are unaware of it is because it, it predominantly affects women. 80% of the people affected are, are female and it is disfiguring. So they, they stay in the shadows. Right. They, they are frightened or embarrassed to come out, many of them. And so that also kind of kept it a dirty little secret and, mm. and didn't get any attention for it. So, yeah, I, 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 I actually tip my hat to Bob Saget because I think he's been even more visible than I am. I th- Bob, I went to Washington once, you know, to do a, a panel on it, but Bob's been back and forth several times. And, mm. um, but at least it has, it has some faces now, which is great. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's made, it's made an impact I know for sure. And so how did you also get, thrust into or thrust yourself into um because you don't have enough going on in your life you decided to tackle middle east peace right and be involved in what's happening in israel and palestine and the surrounding areas and and i thought your viewpoint was really smart and thoughtful and reasonable um but can you talk about that a bit please yeah so the organization you're talking about is called one voice it was it was um at least this is the facts as i'm aware of them it was created by um a a fellow named daniel lebetsky and uh, uh, an Israeli Arab by the name of Mohammed Dawarsha. And they had been business partners. And and Danny had a business. What Danny is famous for now, if you watch Shark Tank, he's been a guest shark. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Danny is the founder and CEO of Kind, the Kind Bars right, and the yeah. Kind Products. Yeah, fantastic story. Kind has a philosophy that is a continuation of a company that Danny founded uh, called PeaceWorks. And it's a little bit like Seeds of Peace, where he would take peoples that are in conflict and he would take a product from one and a product from another and make a new product and say, now you're in business together. Right. So he was building bridges through through business ventures, basically. Kind has a similar, uh, uh, if not exactly the same mandate. But through his work, Danny is a, um, a Mexican-born Jewish guy. Um, Muhammad was a, an Israeli Arab. And... They did a lot of work in the in Israel and the Middle East, and this was back in the early nineties. Um, and they had an amazing idea based on their observation of working within Palestinian and Israeli communities. They said, "You know, this whole failure to find a solution here—it's not a people problem because most of the people they were dealing with on both sides were moderates who all kind of knew in the back of their heads that this was going to finally end up in a two-state." solution of some kind. And if you talked to them about the, the, the 10 sort of main issues that needed to be negotiated, they all kind of went, you know, one of the big sticking points was, well, it's going to divide Jerusalem. How can Jerusalem be a divided city and survive? And you go, 
Well, it already is. It's been that way. <laughs> it, it, it's a it's functioning city, and we yeah. everybody kind of knows East Jerusalem is right. Palestinian, West Jerusalem is Israeli, and the Jews have the the Wailing Wall, and the Muslims have the yeah. Dome of the Rock, and we and they figured it out. It it's was like just neighbor, a it's like neighborhoods solution. in Brooklyn. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it feels less divided so, than some neighborhoods in Brooklyn. <laughs> that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So. By talking to the citizens, they said, boy, you know, if it weren't up to the leaders, we could get this done. And their idea was to create a platform where you could quantify a voting system among the populations where they would essentially negotiate their own terms of the settlement. And then once done, excuse me, they could take it to the leadership on both sides and go, look, do this. We will back it. We'll vote for it. And you'll be fine. Um. I was introduced to these guys at uh, Danny DeVito and Rio Perlman's house. They're they're very, very big philanthropists. And they had these guys in and they were telling their story. And it was really Muhammad that got me because Muhammad was telling the story of his older son, Fadi. I believe his name was Fadi. And Fadi was 12 years old and he had come to his dad and said, hey, dad. Remember where I told you um, I was really bad in math and I said I was going to be the, the first in my class you know, first greatest math student in class. And I worked and worked and I did it, right, Dad? And he said, yes, you did, Fadi. That's great. And he said, remember, I was I was really a bad soccer player and I said, I'm going to be the captain of the team. And I worked and I worked and I became the captain of the soccer team. And he said, yes, I'm very proud of you, Fadi. You did. He came to him and he said, Dad, I'm going to be a martyr. And it was at that point, as Muhammad told this story, that wow. he turned to us in the audience and said, I need your help because this needs to be a promise my son doesn't keep. And I have to convince him that there's another way. And my kids were very young at the time. And I just, as a father to a father, I I melted. And I just went, look, I don't know what I can offer you guys. But whatever you think it is, be it money or anything else, let me know and I'll I'll try and do it. And they said, honestly, what we need is we we need you to come to the Middle East. They said Seinfeld is huge in Israel, and it is. It right. is. It is huge. Apparently, it's also huge in Palestine. I believe Don't figure it. Figure that out. I believe it. Um, <clears throat> and they said if you would come, peace initiatives were like Kleenex in the Middle East. Everybody had one, and they kept throwing them away. You couldn't get a press. You couldn't get journalists to come and cover anything. They said if you would come, it would put real attention on what we're trying to do. So I went uh, three or four times on behalf of One Voice. Uh, to go over and and meet with the Israeli members of the board and the Palestinian members of the board and attend press events. What I liked about it, what I really appreciated, is it was never to give my opinion. It was never to weigh in on how this should be resolved. It was merely, I was the carrot. I would say, thank you for coming. I think my friends here are engaged in really important work and have something you should hear. Mm. And then I would turn it over. Mm. And I thought, that's how you use a celebrity. That's really what it's for. You to bring some attention to it and then not pretend to be an expert, not pontificate, get out of the way and say, I believe in these guys. I just wanted to introduce you to them. And it in one voice really, I thought, was on its way to making a huge difference. The problem is when I started with them. There was a real hope in the air on both sides. Um, the moderates would always say, I didn't, I didn't think there'd be anybody to negotiate with on the other side, but I guess there is. Ten years after I started with One Voice, because of the leadership on both sides, right. all, that, all that hope uh, has faded. 
I, I think we are further from it now than we've ever been. There's so much power in that, Jason. I thank you for, for sharing. I need to take a minute to kind of sure. digest it. Um, and I think folks who are listening to it probably feel it resonating with what's happening at home too, right? We talk a lot in this show about the power of the moderates, the independents. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean neutral, right? Right, And it doesn't mean at all apathetic. Often it means the opposite. People who really do believe in their country ahead of their party. People right. who care about the world more than about themselves and have the long-term vision. But we see now... I mean, I, I have, you know, Israeli friends, I have Palestinian friends. And recently I was with a friend, I said, man, what's more fucked up right now, Israeli politics or American politics, right? I mean, the corruption in Israel, Absolutely. the dysfunction, the the extremes, right? And, and this has happened in so many other parts of the world. It's Hungary and it's and it's Venezuela and it's yeah. other parts, right? So this, this emergence of the radical edges dominating the conversation and inflaming the conversation and blowing up peace. Absolutely. Right? Whether it's NATO or, um, you know, a, a, an infrastructure deal back home. I mean, everything is getting blown up. So you have become, I think it sounds like, increasingly vocal about the situation in America and, and critical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because you are a bridge builder. Like your role, especially because of Seinfeld, you're trusted. And, and I think it's a time when some folks will say, you know, to athletes, you know, shut up and dribble or shut up and play or, or to actors, you know, shut up and be on my screen. Yeah. But I think now more than ever, there's an important role for voices like yours to play in bringing, if only the carrot, right? And bringing moderation and yeah. also bringing perspective because you've been around the world. You've seen the opportunities and the costs of how to do things, the right way to do things and the wrong way to do things and the right way to treat people and the wrong way to treat people. So to bring that back, to the U.S. and globally, the question I ask of, of all guests, Jason Alexander, what makes you angry? Well, we're on it. Um, you know, I, I, I thankfully, uh, through years of therapy, are no longer, um, I don't get ruffled by the little indignities or injustices in life. It's, it's big things. So for me, what is consuming me right now and that I don't understand is the moral vacuum that we suddenly seem to be living in. I don't, so for the audience, I I am, anybody would probably categorize me as a democratic progressive thinker. But having said that, I will be the first one to go to bat and say, if we ever truly lost the conservative voice in this country, I would fear for our country. I think the greatest strength that America has is the diversity of not only cultures and races, but of experiences and thinking from left and right. And what it enables us to do that a a more homogenous society can't do is we come at challenges and issues and problems from so many different angles that when we make solutions, they tend to be profound solutions. They tend to be solutions that stick and that really move, as as the United States has been an example for the world, moves the world forward in a leadership way. And I think it's because of this internal struggle of our ideas. So to lose those conservative values and those conservative voices, to me, is a tragic loss. And I'm angry because we're losing the conservative values. Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up. It's not 
you know, and both sides have their flaws. I'll be the first one to laugh my ass off at, at conservatives, uh, sorry, at, at liberals and progressives and Democrats. We are as dysfunctional and fucked up as anybody else. But we know where our moral core is right now. Our moral core is not in question. I don't understand where the conservative side is right now. I don't understand Lindsey Graham right now. I don't understand Mitch McConnell right now. I don't understand a party that stood for fiscal, you know, fiscal conservatism, that stood for, um, for lack of a better word, Judeo-Christian ethics to the max. That was the law and order party. That was the party of a sort of almost, you know, (laughs) nun-like discipline and adherence to ethics. Right. That rightfully and willfully stood up and went, we're going to impeach President Clinton because he lied about a sex act, which was not a crime, but his lying about it was a crime. And as much as I go, come on, that's what you're going to impeach the guy for? He didn't want to admit that he did something morally wrong in his marriage and you backed him into a corner. And because he, he didn't, you know, he didn't want to admit it. That's his high crime and misdemeanor for which you're going to impeach him. But if I'm going to be intellectually and morally honest, I go, you lied under oath. Right. You lied under oath. And if they want to push that, then you have to be held accountable for it. Well, how do you look at what's going on in this administration where the stakes are so much higher? If he, let's say if, if he is guilty and if his administration is guilty of the things that they are being charged for, they are trashing our constitution, trashing our democracy, trashing our standing in the world, trashing science, which means you're trashing our future. And trashing certainly half, if not three quarters of the people that make up this country. And this party is going to stand up and look the other way and justify it. And Mm. I I don't understand that. Mm. I don't understand why they don't en masse turn to each other and go, okay, look, let's just do this. Trump's out. Romney, stand up guy. He believes in everything we believe in. He wouldn't necessarily change one policy that Trump stands for or any of the values that we're going for. Let's get someone that America can, you know, look up to. Mm -hmm. I look at Mitt Romney, Mm -hmm. I go, if I got President Romney, I got no problems. I don't Mm -hmm. agree with half of what he believes in. Right. But I believe in him. I think he's a decent guy. I think he will do things with intelligence and with morality and, and with a soul. I don't understand how they continue to back this freak show. But there, and thank you for that. I really, <laughs> no, I think there's really a lot of powerful insight in the way you're breaking it down. And I, I was so excited. Look, I wanted to hear you talk about Pretty Woman and Seinfeld, but I really want to hear you talk about Trump. <laughs> I do. And I think a lot, because I, I know you from afar and, and I really appreciate your insight and your, your intelligence and your sophistication, but you understand in a very deep level, this country, like the fabric of this country. I mean, there is a reason why Seinfeld is popular everywhere. I mean, if Seinfeld was our representation to the world instead of Donald Trump, we'd be in a whole lot better place right now. Seemingly. Right? Um, But in, in my view, when I see the Lindsey Grahams and the others of the world, I do understand it. It's actually not hard for me to understand. I think they're either scared. um, They're, they're, they're going to benefit um, or they're ignorant 
Mm-hmm. Right. So many of them are complicit. So many of them are just making a calculation. Sure. They're afraid he might win. Yeah. Right. And that's the same way fascist dictators and authoritarians rise around the world. You either think, you know, you say to yourself, a lot of people are going to get screwed, but I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And if everybody's getting screwed, I got to protect my own ass. And that's what I see in many of them right now, whether it's politically, you know, ethically, financially, um, there's still a lot of calculations going on right now, right? They don't want to be on the wrong side of this guy right. and they're placing their bets, right? Yeah. And every day they're, they're watching the odds in Vegas. And right now it looks like he probably will get reelected. He may get reelected. Who knows? Right. But that's what I see. But I think your, your, your focus on the death of conservatism in this country is one of the most underreported stories. I think, you know, I view tragic, you know, John McCain, the ghost of John McCain, is is lost right now, right? And guys like mm-hmm. Romney and others who could have inherited it are are gone now, right? Yeah. George Bush Senior is gone now, and there's this vacuum and chaos where bad actors and and scoundrels are kind of overtaking the the narrative, and mm-hmm. they've got their hands on the steering wheel, absolutely, and are destroying our our Impala and our beautiful car. They are in so many different ways. And here's the thing that really kills me. So my my real foray into political activism was a little bit of an accident. When Obama was running the first time, I, I must have said something, you know, very uh, supportive of him. And I got a call from the campaign and said, would you be one of our um, celebrity, uh, what did they uh, call it? Uh, not an advocate, but a, um, a surrogate. A surrogate. Yep. That's right. Yep. And I said, well, what does the surrogate do? And they say, honestly, you just go around to where our campaign offices are and you're a treat for our supporters and our workers. You just go and you thank them and you cheerlead. And I go, yeah. great. I'd love to do that. That's terrific. Love to do that. So I go out and I'm, I'm going from state to state and city to city doing exactly that. And one of the events was at a restaurant in West Palm Beach, Florida. And it was supposed to be just exactly that. It was all his campaign workers uh, came to that restaurant, but it was a public venue. It wasn't the campaign office. Mm-hmm. And some tea partiers must have found out that that was happening and they came and they hit this event and they disrupted the event. And the Obama people started to hustle me away. I said, if you do that, you know, there's some news cameras here. It's just going to look like you're turning tail. Right. I said, I have no problem talking to them. And they go, well, you know, we don't want you doing policy or that. I said, no, 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 no. I won't do that. I think I can, I think I can talk to them. Yeah. So I go over and um, there was one woman in particular who was particularly aggressive. She didn't like this whole thing that I was using my status as a celebrity to advocate politically. And I said, well, I understand that, but you know, I'm also, I am just a citizen and we all have you know, we all, vote you're not the secretary all, of labor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, and you know, and she's really emotional. And I said, you know, ma'am, I have to say I, the irony here is I, I think if we just talk to each other, we would agree on more things than we disagree on. And she goes, no, we don't, no, we don't adamant. And I said, I, I really think we would. And I said, I'll tell you what, I don't know if you're a betting woman. I'll make you bet. And I, I took some money out of my wallet and I said, here's the, here's the deal. You name the issue. You, you get to pick the issue. You express your point of view, I'll express mine. And then you get to be the judge. You will decide if we agree more than we disagree. If you decide we disagree more, this money is yours. You do whatever you want with it. If you decide we agree, I don't care what you take out of your wallet, but take something out and go give it to the Obama people. <laughs> so she, of course, jumps on this offer. <laughs> she's, there's no way she's going to lose okay. this, right? 
I go, okay, what's your topic? She goes, I'm an evangelical Christian. I don't believe in abortion for any reason. I want it illegal and I want it gone tomorrow. And I know you don't agree. So I think for a second, I go, okay, let me, let me re-say what you just said a slightly different way. You would like to live in a country where no woman, no couple, no family ever feels they need to have an abortion. And given the choice, would really very rarely have ever opt to have an abortion. Is that fair? And she thought for a second, she said, yeah. I said, well, I want the same thing. And by the way, everyone I know who's pro-choice wants the same thing. I don't know anybody who's pro-choice who's pro-abortion. We don't sit around going, yay, another abortion. Right. We, I will tell you, it's always a tragedy. And I'll even tell you, there's always a death. I'll give it to you. I don't know if it's, you know, we want to call it a fully formed human being, but something that's alive died. That's a tragedy. Our side sometimes feels that having that birth could add to that tragedy. But neither here nor there, we want abortion to be practically a ghost. I don't think we get there by making it illegal. That's your solution. It was illegal. We had a lot of dead babies. We had a lot of dead women. I think we get there through family counseling and healthcare and education and empowering of women. I think there's all kinds of things we could do that would get us as close as possible to zero abortions. I don't think making it illegal is one of them. And she looked at me and she thought, she took out 20 bucks and she gave it to the Obama people. That is a scenario that I have repeated time after time after time in different conversations with avowed conservatives in red states and purple states. And I find that the end results of what we want are not that different from each other. Where we really divide is on how we think we might get mm. there. So my thesis becomes, if that's true, that kind of the end result is something we share a desire for, why don't we vote for people that can advocate for what we want, but have the same conversation you and I just had, and negotiate for something that serves you and serves me? Why are we voting for people that are pushing you and me further and further and further apart? And why are you willing to give your money to people who are making a fortune to push you and me further and further and further apart? So my appearance on Twitter, I try very, very hard, unlike some of my friends that we talked about, yeah. to not antagonize the other side. I, don't tr I try not to use names. I don't, I don't name call. I notice that. I and notice I don't that. belittle yeah. people. Yeah. What I really do is I... I reiterate some information that's available and go, are you, are you seeing this? And I'm basically doing that more for the people on my side so they have real talking points that they can use. And for anybody who might be, uh, you know, unresolved about all this to go, oh, uh, that's something to think about. Mm. It's not to say to the other side, you're an idiot. Because I know that our conversation, if I was really talking to the other side, it's a much more nuanced conversation than you know, retweeting a Ron Perlman. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Ron. We, we were, do. We were uh, Ron, you are the we, bravest we, Jew in America. <laughs> <laughs> We were we were talking earlier about uh, how Ron had joined us on the show. If you're listening, you haven't heard it. Go back and listen to our wild conversation with Ron Perlman from Sons of Anarchy and Hellboy and everything else, <laughs> driving through Los Angeles talking about Trump's dick. Um, yeah. But he got banned on Twitter recently. He did. He did. 
Um, but I think to pulling it back, what, what you, what you do and what Ron does, you're elevating issues, right? And, and there's, you, you touch on something important, Jason, you talk about, you're really talking about leadership yeah, and, and, and leadership, creating the time and the space to be thoughtful about real goals that we share, right? Which could be as simple as peace, right? Right. Absolutely. And, but, but in this environment right now that our leaders perpetuate, it is a quick hit. They, they want to see you fighting in the Waffle House or the diner in West Palm Beach, right? They want to see you shitting on each other on Twitter. It's got to happen in 30 seconds. It's not a thoughtful conversation yeah. like you and I are having here. This is why I like this format of, of media so much because you can have time to really expand on your thinking and people can better understand how you feel, how you think, and consider a different vantage point. But I think it, it, it allows for leadership to emerge. Right. And, and you are a very important leader in this country, if only because you're adding that positive tone, you're adding more light than heat. And that's what we need in this environment right now. And, and sometimes it has to come with a joke, right? Sometimes it has to come with food and breaking bread. Right. But when you were, I want to ask you, you guys did the show in New York for so many years and you lived in New York, by the way, wrong. Sorry. I'm sorry. We did Correct the show me. in LA. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Now About I, New York, everybody. I, it was a great how, illusion. How did I not know that? I know okay. everybody. There are more people that I think we that. shot that thing in New York. Well, everybody kind of roams around looking for the sites, right? I know. But yeah. but you did a show about New York, yes, right? We did. And you, Absolutely. You lived in New York. So was Trump ever on the show? No. Was he ever around the show? Never. Did you ever meet him? No. In all your times, Roman, like in that time period where he was in New York, dating Marla Maples and all that kind of stuff, your paths never, never crossed. Never crossed paths. I, I didn't even spot him across a room. I don't think we've been in the same room together. Wow, that's fascinating to me. And I, I'm curious if he's met Jerry or any of the other guy. He must have at some point at some event. I would or imagine, thing, right? He's at least been in a room. But did you ever Jerry. think, knowing him, because you grew up in this media environment, did you ever think he could actually become president? No. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I was not aware of, um, if you had asked me in my 20s and early 30s about Donald Trump, I'd go, well, I guess he's a New York success story. I mean, you know, his name is on all these buildings. I guess he's a successful guy, uh, you know, a little rough around the edges. I don't know much about him, but, you know, seems to be one of those guys, one of these multi-millionaires that did his real estate thing and was successful. It wasn't until really the last 10 years that the stories of what that success is actually built on that have started to come out and, and to see the kind of character that he's become. The other thing is, is that, you know, what a lot of people forget is the, <laughs> the darling of the conservative Tea Party-esque side of our politics was an avowed Democrat. Right. Uh, you know, he. these are not positions that he holds near and dear to his heart. He he was actually quoted somewhere of saying, if I was ever going to run get into politics, I would run, and I, this is him, not me, I would run as a Republican because they're so much stupider. That was what he said. Right. And, uh, you know, so he's, the, the reason that you can't hold him to any of these positions, he, he doesn't believe what he's doing. Right. I don't think he cares. Again, I'm trying not to antagonize. I've never, I've never met anybody like him. I don't understand him. the The worst thing I could say about anybody is they wouldn't, they wouldn't sacrifice themselves for their kids. I think that Mm. is true of almost any Mm. parent I've ever met. Mm. That you put a, 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 a medical condition on my kids. They need a, they need the operation. They need my heart. 
I'm dead that day because my heart is going into my kids. 100%. I don't know that he would make that sacrifice. I don't think there is that level of concern in him for any other human being. I would much rather be wrong about that. Mm. I would really love to be wrong. But the person I've seen, based on the actions that I've seen, I, I can't imagine him being selfless to that degree. That's powerful. Again, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, you but know, I think it is powerful. Um, so we, uh, we, we, Jeff's had on the show Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's mm-hmm. the second candidate that we've had on the show. I hope we have them all. Um, I, of course, invite Trump to join us as well if he wants to dial in from Malta or wherever he might be in the right. next couple of, of months. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. But, um, but we did have Mayor Pete on. We've had Tulsi Gabbard on. We hope to have others. Um, what's your analysis of the field? As someone who is influential and has a very, very powerful voice, what's your analysis of the field? And, and what would your counsel be as someone who does know this country and know the media and know entertainment and the intersection of all of them? Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what's your analysis of the landscape? So what's really interesting to me about what's going on is it's the best and worst of, of what we're about right now. In as much as the Republican Party is a party in search for its soul, so are the Democrats. Mm-hmm. The reason the Tea Party and Trump and this whole, you know, the Trump base has happened is because the Democrats got stupid and turned a blind eye on a whole bunch of people and a whole lot bunch of realities. And those people felt marginalized and alienated and forgotten. And, you know, people don't curl up and die when that happens. They get angry and they fight back. And and what we're getting now is is that fight. Um so our party is looking for its new center. It's looking for what is the 21st century, the true 21st century direction of the Democratic Party. Is it a sort of democratic socialism um, as expressed by Bernie and by Elizabeth Warren and even to some degree by uh, Julian Castro and and Cory Booker? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> or is there, is it more a, which by the way would be turning the Titanic 180 degrees in about nine seconds. That is a very fast turn for a very large ship. And then there is the more moderate part of our party that's going, we, if you turn it that fast, you'll break the ship in half and you'll, it'll sink. So in order to take conservatives or independents or undecided moderates on a, and, and move them to one side of the line or the other, we need to do so incrementally, and that's being represented by Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Michael Bennett and you know a, a couple other people who are out in the red. Bloomberg, I'm sure, to some degree. Um, and it's a worthwhile discussion and exploration to have. What it doesn't do is inspire voters. <laughs> right, right, um, right. While they're having that discussion and that argument, the voters are going, what the fuck are you guys going to do? Just make up your goddamn minds. <laughs> Tell us where you want to go, and we'll decide if we're with you. It, it is not a comfortable situation for the average um, uh, progressive or, or Democrat. But I, 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 for one, believe it's a, a healthy process. My other fear is that no matter which side of the, of that equation prevails, I'm not sure that it is being represented by anybody that America as a whole would look to and say, I believe in that person 100%. Um, 
if I look at Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I see a limited picture of what I think a president needs. I think they're incredibly bright. I'm so, so, so smart um, and experienced. And, and they are coming from the most honest. I think they're two of the most honest politicians in this race about their heart and soul connected to what they're espousing. But I don't know what Bernie Sanders does in foreign policy. I don't know what Bernie Sanders does in law and order. I mm. only know what Bernie Sanders espouses as a sociopolitical movement. Same thing with Elizabeth Warren. Um, so I don't see a whole complete presidential picture there, which concerns me because I think these moderate independent voters are looking for that image. You don't see it in Trump. So can you see it in the person that's going to go up against him? I think potentially they could see it in Biden, but what's happening to Biden right now, and I don't think it's that it's a mental problem. I think there's a stress problem right now. I think he is, his heart is so burdened by what's being said about him and his family and the fact that he's gone through a tremendously hard time in the last four to five years. I, I think he's becoming inarticulate and emotional in ways that he wouldn't have been five years ago. Mm. And so he doesn't feel like he's got the strongest grip Right. Yeah, now. it's it also looks like it's kind of overwhelming him. It does. Right? Like he's an old quarterback, you know, I don't know, like a like maybe a, an Eli Manning type when Lamar Jackson is the new quarterback in the NFL, <laughs> right? I mean, the game is moving faster, it's changing all around you, exactly. and you're holding the ball in the pocket too long yeah. and you're fumbling and it's, you know, you're, you're kind of shutting down. Right. And Clinton has talked a lot very powerfully about how many especially of the older white male voters uh, that Trump was able to capture felt like the world was changing too fast. Right. It was spinning too fast. And they just wanted to grab the, the handle, say, slow it down, yeah. stop the change. I'm not ready for it. Absolutely. And, and he's kind of in that place where the media environment is, is, is wrapping him up. And he looks like he's kind of on the ropes all the time yeah. because he didn't know what the hell Snapchat was. And it just hit him from the, from the yeah. side. Right. He um, also looks, he looks hurt. He does. To me. He does. Well, he I looks look surprised. Him. Like when 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 yeah. Kamala Harris came at him. Yeah. He real and and maybe and that's that's a bit of arrogance. Maybe maybe it's a bit of entitlement. Right. This idea that like you're really doing this, but it's also in my view a bit of his appeal to maybe what you're talking about, which is can we be strategic about this? Can we not have a family fight out in the open? Can we not shoot each other? on the stage, that's right? And, and, that, and that's what I see. Yeah. And I've been challenging them all on. I challenged yeah. Mayor Pete on this. You know, can there be a Game of Thrones moment? Like, who's going to be Jon Snow? Can you actually get the tribes together? Or, and what I see is probably more likely mm -hmm. is they're not going to put their kids first and they're going to take it all the way to the primary. Bernie's going to go down fighting. Mm -hmm. Tulsi's going to do her own thing. There'll be other holdouts and, the, and most of the voters will be sitting here saying, get your shit together and pick a quarterback. Right. Pick a quarterback and let's hit the field and let's go. Yeah. Because I also argue, Jason, that every dollar they're spending against each other is a dollar they won't have for the fight against Trump. Absolutely. Right? It's finite resources. And you've only got so much ammunition. And every piece of ammunition you waste on friendly fire is one you don't have for the enemy. Yeah. And so I really do, I see that vacuum. Right. And it, I think we all, we all see it. Yeah, and I feel absolutely. like the American people are almost trying to fill it. But when that's all said and done, you know, you looked at both sides, you kind of set this stage of the progressive side or the moderate side, which I think is, is right. And what many of us see, which side are you, are you rooting for? Well, I will <laughs> tell you that 
Or what do you think is the best path? Well, like, right? now this may be you an indication goal, of, right? of my is, age. Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm, I'm a 60-year-old guy yeah. now. And, uh, you know, when, when the right comes at me and goes, ah, you're a lefty, elite, liberal, progressive asshole. And I go, you'd be surprised about some of my positions. Right. You'd be really surprised. I, I, and they don't know my voting record. I have voted for Republicans. I have voted for what would be considered conservative issues. Um, when I thought that that was the best idea or the best person at the time. I, my experience tells me that the kind of radical change that is, that the most progressive part of the party is pushing for is idealistically a very, very strong guiding light. But I think that the tempo at which they would like to execute it is fraught with dangers because you have to bring, I'm tired of policies that leave half the country behind. Mm. Um, so to me, this idea of nudging the ship 10 degrees at a time, rather than cranking the wheel and turning it 180 feels more uh, responsible and it feels more practical and it feels more accomplishable to me. Mm. So I tend to get more excited by two candidates that you hear nothing about, which are Amy Klobuchar mm. and Michael Bennett. Mm. And I get excited by, although I'm not sure it's his time, but I really do get excited by Pete Buttigieg. Um, I wish he had more experience. I wish South Bend was this extraordinary success story that he could go, look. Right. Um, but he hasn't made the case for what he's, he articulates so masterfully. But then look at what the accomplishments are, and they aren't as masterful as the articulation. Right. So I feel like which is, is Which is kind of Democrats in a nutshell, right? Absolutely. Like that's been a generation we of talk Democrats. talk a great talk. Big promises and suck at the execution, right? Absolutely. I always use the VA as an example, right? Yes. Obama came in, just like every president, said, I'm going to clean up the VA. He left, and the VA is a fucking mess. Yeah, and Absolutely. And you know, execution in government and in politics is where good ideas go to die, right? Absolutely. Obama w was was aspirational, but he also had a hell of a ground game, yep. right? And he was able to build a coalition and he was able to score points yeah. in places that mattered like talk, you know, talk radio or on in the entertainment world and yeah. cobble that together. So it feels like all of them are trying to piece it together, but just not completing the puzzle, yeah. right? And and so would, would you, Jason, will you endorse a candidate? Will you pick one at the I, end of I, all of this? You know, I might when the field gets closer, and there's really something to talk about. Yeah. The truth is I would vote for this bottle of water over <laughs> Donald Trump. So whoever the candidate is, yes. and I mean this sincerely, if it's Liz Warren, Andrew Yang, yeah. uh, Bloomberg, uh, or this bottle of water, yeah. I I'm going that direction <laughs> because it, the opposite is untenable for yeah. me. I, I worry, I, I really worry that former years of Trump unchecked, unchecked by the impeachment process, Yeah unchecked by the revelation of all his criminal exploit and unchecked by wanting to get a second term unleashed. I can't imagine the tragedies. I, I just can't imagine it. Uh, and I don't want to imagine it. Um, would you, would you ever run for office? I don't think so. But you're not, I think this, but that's, but you're not ruling it out. <laughs> uh, I don't rule out anything, but, uh, but I, I can't imagine for a number of reasons. Could One you is, go home and run for governor of New Jersey? 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the reason why. There are many reasons why. Yeah. I really do believe that politics, um, you know, there are a lot of people that act for a living, but a, a very small percentage of them have actually trained and have skills to bring to the table. They do it, but they don't know what they're doing. And they can still be successful until you give them something that they can't handle. And then they go, I don't really know what I'm doing. I feel the same way about politics. Mm. There are skills that I think are, are important if you're going to be a governing, if you're going to add to leadership. They are business experience. They are um, law and congressional knowledge. They are military service. They are having done this kind of governing at a smaller level. There's all economics. There's all things that I know zippity doo da about. My skill is as a communicator. I can talk to people and I generally have been able to talk to people in a way that brings them closer together. That's a great skill. But I want to challenge you on that. Yeah. That might be the skill we need most right now. It might. Right? In this, but in, in it this means environment, that policy yeah. would really be dependent on everybody else telling me what should happen. Well, or, 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 or advising you, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's yeah. where I think, you know, and I challenge you on this because I think, you know, we need more people in, in government. I think too often people say government is, I've been close enough to it to see that most of them don't have all that shit and most of them are not that good. I mean, we've yeah. seen that in the impeachment hearings that now welcome to how shitty members of Congress actually are, right. right? Many of them are not impressive. Many of them don't have lots of skill sets. Many of them don't have all the experience that everyone thinks. And then you've got Trump who had, you know, none of that. Right. And granted, <clears throat> it has created problems. He doesn't yeah. know how to run certain things and operate certain protocols. But I think there's a moment in time where we need patriots and, and you're doing so much already that I think if Democrats were smart, they would literally look across the spectrum and say, who could we run? Who are the, let's run Springsteen and let's run and let's run and yeah. let's run Jason Alexander, yeah. right? And look across and, and, you know, run them in Kentucky and run them in California, right? I mean, that's what Trump has kind of created is, is this, 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 um, this combination of celebrity and politician and sure. activism in this new thing right now, AOC is a celebrity. You bet. I mean, and, 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 and Rachel, and Rachel Maddow and we, you know, yep. Sean Hannity, like we could bring it around. There's this emergence and, and almost a celebration in this country that I think Trump was ahead of yeah. recognizing. Sure. So I will tell you not as a New Jersey resident, but as a neighbor, you know, I, I, I hope you do run. And I think if a president was smart, they'd find a way to have you involved because well, the mastery right. of communication and the way you do it is maybe what he sucks the most at and what we need the most right now. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would have, you, you, I would have crazy issues if I were to ever run. Like literally, this is two of them right yeah, off the bat. Yeah. Okay. One of them you don't know about, but the other one you, you're not taking into consideration. Okay. The one you maybe wouldn't th have thought of is Jason Alexander is not my real name. I know it's that. It's a stage name. Yeah. So do I run as Jason Alexander, this bullshit name I made up for show business, or do I run as J. Scott Greenspan? And if I do, I have to spend a lot of time telling that story. Ask, and ask, then, but ask Barry Obama. Number two. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, 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 sure. that's a, but I have that's to a tactical undo problem. A lot. And the that's other problem, problem is, and truthfully, this happens every day. People don't know me. They know George. And if you tell them George Costanza is running for office, you got to get past that joke. You got to get past that impression. Well, uh, with all due respect, you know, Al Franken got past it. Yes, Donald Trump got past it. You know, lots but of other Al, people have gotten past it. It, 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 
He wasn't as defined by him. one character Correct. in the same way you are. Yeah, but That's it right. was you That's know right. everything he's ever said as a comedian yeah. Yeah. they used. To, but this is what I'm excited about him. is seeing people, especially in, in a format like this, people are now hearing the the real you, not George Costanza. Right. right? You're probably sick of saying, "Hey, what would George hear and what would George Costanza vote for? What would right. he think?" Like that's not you. Sure. And and you are many much more than that. I mean. I'm excited to see you especially and other people that I've been honored to know and see who have so much life experience be pulled in by this moment. Yeah. And, and that I think is inspiring and really important. And, and I think will inspire a whole new generation of actors and politicians to think about things differently. You, you mentioned the uh, bottle yeah. of water. I have to ask you because yeah. it is angry Americans. We're in a, we're, we're at Matador. Uh, so big shout out to Matador. Thank you for hosting us here today. They had something going on at the car club. We're in this, um, it's a, it's a music room. Like it's a recording studio basically. And over your shoulder, there are record covers of Pearl Jam, Snoop Dogg, Pink Madonna. Yeah. Lou Reed yeah. is some cool shit. Um, but we did not start the show by asking you what your what adult beverage of choice is. Yeah. And so what is your adult beverage of choice? I, I don't have, I'm not an adult. Uh, you I, are I, definitely. Adult. I am a real teetotaler. Um, and it not through any, uh, it's not a religious thing. <laughs> it's just, I think what it was, honestly, is uh, my my mom was in the healthcare world. She was a, a nurse and a nurse educator. And when I was about 14 years old, around the time if you were going to start drinking, that would be the time when your buddies start getting a hold of some beers and stuff. So I've had asthma from the time I was a teenager. And there was a girl in New Jersey, and if you're a good New Jersey boy, you may remember this name. Her name was Karen Ann Quinlan. And Karen Ann Quinlan was a young teenage girl, asthmatic, who one night went out and got drunk, and went into a coma from which she never recovered and wow. died. And my mother went, I hope you read that story. <laughs> and I think in the back of my head, I had some image that if I put alcohol to my lips, I would be the next Karen Ann Quinlan. So my drinking record, in college, I learned to enjoy a beer with certain food. Like I had, I had Mexican food and somebody said, this is called Corona. This is called Dos Equis. You should taste this. And I went, wow, these things right. go great together. Right. But I have never been drunk. I have never been high. Wow. And, and that may point to the control freak in me. I don't, love the taste of most things that people consider really good, like good dry wines, fine wines. I go, well, it's alcohol. Right. I like the fruitier stuff, which is loaded with sugar and my girlish figure does not need more <laughs> calories. So I just never quite went down that road. So if you see me at a party and you look at the glass in my hand and it's got some color in it, it's probably a cranberry and soda. It's just nothing else. I, I, I'm not anti-drinking. I, I, We'll have an occasional glass of something, but if I have alcohol once every month to a month and a half, it's probably a big deal. I'm so glad I asked that. That must have been difficult in entertainment for 30 years. Not at all. Really? Yeah, not That's at all. That's again, I guess it's a testament I'll tell to you your what focus. was tricky. So I do, um, I'm about to go do my fourth tour of Australia. I love touring. Ah. Uh, I do some form of comedy, some form of stand up in Australia. And um, the, I love the Australians, and they're the friendliest, nicest people in the world, and they are gigantic. Gigantic Seinfeld fans. Half of my fan mail to this day comes from Australia. Really? So you get down there and they recognize you. And they go, hey, mate. Oh, I love you. You're a champion, mate. I'm going to buy you a pint. Go buy you a pint. And I, and I would say, oh, that's really sweet of you, but I, I really don't drink. And to them, it was like saying, I don't want to drink with you. And that's like, an, it's an oh, insult. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Fine. Yeah. 
And I went, no. I, and then I would backpedal and go, I, I, so I've learned to say, only in Australia, I learned to say, oh, thanks. You know, um, I used to have a problem. They go, oh, gotcha. Uh, Got you, mate. No problem. Uh, uh, Diet Coke for you, it is. You know? <laughs> you know? So in, in Australia, I'm a, I'm a reformed alcoholic. But everywhere else, I just don't drink. <laughs> Every question I ask you, I'm so glad I asked you, no matter where, where it goes. But I, I want to ask you the, 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 the last question that I ask of every guest on sure. the show. Um, you bring so much positivity. And I again, the limited time we've been together in person, but from afar and in all your work, and especially today, like I think this is, this is going to drop, uh, this show will drop uh, in advance of Christmas uh-huh. and Hanukkah, which are overlapping right. this year, and I believe, Festivus. right? And Festivus. Sure. Um, so I, I have to ask you for your thoughts on Festivus or any Festivus wishes. But before I do, it's a time of happiness. Sure. Jason Alexander, what makes you happy? Oh, I'm going to be so sappy right now. Really sappy. So, you know, my life is so stupidly blessed. It's, it's disproportionate, honestly. Honestly. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, we've had health issues in my family. We've had career issues. We've had all kinds of things, you know, we've had to work through. And people who knew me well would go, how you doing? How you doing? And the honest answer is the following, and it remains true to this day. Around midnight, every night, I get into a bed. I have a bed. And I have a really cool house. And I have a woman that I've been married to for almost 40 years lying next to me. And she's healthy and she loves me. And my two boys are in that same house and they're in beds and they are healthy and they are secure and they have the hope that tomorrow might be as good or better than today. And I go, that was a great fucking day. I don't need anything else. You give me that every day of my life. I don't need another job. I don't need another person coming up and go, I love your work. I don't need any other accolades, challenges. You don't have to give me another red cent. If I can go to bed every night and go, I feel pretty good. I'm in a good place with someone who loves me next to me. And my family and the people I care about are healthy and happy and safe tonight. That was a great day. Hmm. I think that's the perfect holiday message. Yeah. No matter what your holiday is. Yeah. Um, Any... Uh, I'm going to take a, a, la- a last question on you. I mean, any any question, any thoughts on parenting with all this perspective? Oh, okay. You're somebody who does care deeply about family. Yeah. And, and I've tried to make that a pillar of this show, um, especially, you know, raising kids in, in this environment. It's a chaotic environment. And, and we have to look to mentors um, as parents, as children, as Americans. And I think you, you have been that for me from afar. And I think oh, folks thanks. listening to this will now understand better why. But any any lessons learned on many parenting? Um, that you I can will tell share? you two great books. Please. If you're raising kids, th- they were great. Uh, there's uh, two books written by the same two women. Um, one is called "How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk," and the follow up. That and I wish I could remember these ladies' names. I just don't. They also wrote a book called "Siblings Without Rivalry," and they were very much Bibles for my wife and I uh, as we were raising the boys. But. Um, the thing that I would say is um, whatever you have to teach, truth speaks for itself. You, you, truth doesn't come at the end of a spanking. It doesn't come by 
inflicting pain on somebody. That's not how you get them to understand who you are or what you believe in. Um, and it doesn't necessarily teach the lesson that something that they've engaged in could hurt them by hurting them. Mm. So I believe in communication with our kids, even at the, even when they are non-communicative. Um, and I also believe for the most part that yes, we are there to guide and to teach, but I can tell you having raised my two boys, they came into the world fully loaded. They were exactly who they are. Mm -hmm. I look back at them as infants and I go, Oh, absolutely. That's, mm. that's who they are. So my job is to nurture, to guide, to protect, and to love them unconditionally. Um, they are going to teach me as much as I'm going to teach them. And I think the greatest day my son and I had was when he was like six years old, my older son, Gabe, my wife made the terrible mistake of leaving us alone for a weekend. <laughs> me with a six-year-old. And he, he kind of got it. And he pushed my buttons all day long. He was the biggest little bitch he could possibly oh, be. Yeah. And around dinner time, I snapped. And I'm like, God damn it, Gabe, you this and you that and you da 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 da. And I, and I really yelled. I was really yeah. angry. And, you know, got him ready for bed that night. I'm tucking him in and, you know, he, it was a big thing because I had never really gone off like that. And I got him into bed and I said, I owe you an apology. And his eyes went big and he went, what? Because he, he knew he'd been a little monster all day. Yeah. I said, I owe you an apology. You are a young person. You're supposed to make mistakes. That's how you learn things. You try things out. You try things on. You push at me. You challenge me. That's your job. My job is not to treat you the way I did for doing it. My job is to be clear and supportive, mm. but not to treat you the way I did. And I screwed up today. And I am really sorry. And I really love you. And I love you even when you're doing that stuff <laughs> you did. And he kind of got it. Yeah. He really got it. Yeah. That to have your, your dad or your mom say, I make mistakes. I don't understand everything yeah. about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just guessing. Yeah. I'm taking my best guess. And, you know, I said to them when they were little, when you're in your 20s, we'll sit down and talk about how we did. <laughs> and now we do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we do. I, I look, They're 27 and 24. And, I, you know, and they go, yeah, you, you did good with that. You might have messed up. It's <laughs> like, yeah, I probably I'm did. So, <laughs> I'm so grateful you shared that um, because I had an episode with my son in the last week. He's four. Yeah. And, um, you know, a four-year-old can push your buttons in ways that oh, are absolutely unique. They're geniuses. And he, he hits me in the nuts so many times yeah. and punches me in the face accidentally so many times. Yeah. And I wake up so often, I feel like, you know, I'm having some kind of like, maybe I was a boxer in a past life. <laughs> I just wake up to head blows that come from a foot or, or, or a, a, a hand. Yeah. But I, I did, I raised my, my temper and I lost my voice with him. And interestingly, Jason, like I sat down with him that night. And I said, buddy, I'm, I'm sorry. I lost my cool. I shouldn't do that. You know, I'm, I apologize. Yeah. I want you to know that you have to own things. And, and I've always tried to treat him with respect, both my boys, no matter how old they are. Right. And, and he had this moment where he turned and he looked at me and he said, it's okay, daddy. And he goes, love dad, dad. And he had that moment where he looks at you and he doesn't look like a four-year-old. Yeah. 
And I felt like I was looking at the 27 year old version of him. Um, it's really true. And, and, yeah, those and they get are, it and they appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it, it's, um, I'm trying to remember the, the, the way to express it, but, they, but they, it, it's just, there was a, a, a parenting system that we studied when my kids were little and it worked great with my older one and, and it did not work at all with my younger one, but, but that was fine. But it was, um, a system in which you ask your child to make as many self-determining decisions every day as they possibly yeah. can. Yep. And even when they're like an infant on the changing table, yes. you're supposed to hold up two outfits. Yes. And go, this one's blue yes. and this one's yellow. Is there one you would like? Yes. And they don't know what they're doing, yes. but they'll focus their eyes for a second on the blue one. You go, I see you're looking at the blue one. I think that's what you would like. So that they feel like they have some say in their own work. Yes. And the system says that you get the terrible twos because they've made no decisions for themselves right. up to two. And now you're asking them to start making some decisions because yeah. they need to grow up a little bit and they freak out. Yeah. It, it, gives <laughs> them, it gives them a sense of ownership over their own world. Yeah. And my son was lucky enough to go to a Montessori school and they taught me that about that the choices, yep, exactly. right? Make a choice. Which which shirt do you want to wear, buddy? Yeah. Which shoes do you want to wear? Would you like to walk out of the room or would you like me to carry you, yeah. right? I mean, but empowering yeah. them, I think is an important lesson for life. And yeah. you have given us so many lessons for life. Uh, this you, conversation has thank been- Thank you for doing this. You're, you're, listen, I have always, from the day we met, I admired the hell out of you. You were, um, to me, you looked like, what a leader is supposed to look like. You first of all, you embodied it. Second of all, the mission that you were working on was extraordinary, and the way you ex the way you talked about it and espoused it was extraordinary. And the fact that you have stayed engaged in this work and are still leading in this field is is extraordinary. And you're a young guy with, as you said, four <laughs> under four, and oh. I hope they all become gigantically successful adults. Well, I'm I, I'm so grateful for that and for you, and I have a giving of the gifts. Oh, you, you may not know this, but this is it's uh, in a righteous media. It, bag. It's in a righteous media bag. Um, wow! And, and since it is Festivus wow. and everything else, so I'm going to go in order. All so right. there is an order. There's no okay. feats of strength or the other things that are a part. Do <laughs> you, God, I would I would be. Do you remember them oh, like by heart? Like all the parts of Festivus? Do you have to? I remember the feats of strength, the airing of grievances, right. the, the Festivus pole. Festivus. Do you pole? know Festivus? Do you know how that came about? I, I read about it, but I don't that know. That was a true, truth. one of our writers, and I'm, yes. I, I'm not going to remember his name because I'm old. Um, one of our writers, that was this thing his father made up, and it was a family tradition, and he must have been in the writer's room talking about this crazy thing, and Larry and Jerry must have gone, that is a Frank Costanza right there. And it, it just became the Festivus miracle episode. And so. now it's... But it was all those things. It was the feats of strength, the airing of grievances, the Festivus yes. poll because he didn't want a Christmas tree. Right. And <laughs> and now it's it's like people legitimately celebrate this. It's all this. over the all world. All over the world. And Ben and Jerry's made a flavor, Festivus yes. for the rest of us. And, and this a, episode will drop... Uh, in time for festivals. God bless. So, and here is a part of the giving of the gifts. So the first is, we've got some American-made oh, swag yeah. for you that, oh, uh, yeah. that you can rock in New Jersey or oh, California, yeah. wherever you are, America. made by our friends yeah. at Oscar Mike. Uh, and then this is this is one you, I think, will appreciate. Yeah. So every episode, because we started at Easter, um, we started doing... <laughs> A question of peeps. The marshmallow peeps, so ladies there, and there, gentlemen. There are three colors. I can't even wrap my hand around all Pink, this. blue, and yellow. As only there should be. Jason Alexander, which color of peeps would you choose? I'm a why? yellow peep guy. Why? By the way, I always have been. Why? I don't know, because it looks the most like food. There is no pink or blue food. There are yellow foods. 
Someone else said that. I yeah. think it might have been like like uh, Colicchio or someone. We asked them about that, and they said that there's nothing in nature that is like blue. <laughs> nothing we eat. No, nothing that, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's why the fast and food Carlin restaurants used to are do red. the thing about what about blueberries? And go, no, they're purple. Fuck right, you. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, but so. yeah, yellow is the most popular yeah. choice. Yeah, yellow peeps, of yes. course. Okay, good. That was Beautiful. also Pete Buttigieg's choice. See, he had a very Pete Buttigieg right. answer. If folks haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to it. Okay. I mean, stay around for the end because the people to judge Peep's answer is always, the Peep's question is always worth sticking around sure. for. And then lastly, you don't drink, but each time I go to the same oh. liquor store, and it feels like a Seinfeld oh. episode every time I walk in. They're like, what does this big dude want now? He's going to buy another bottle of whiskey. And I stand there and I look at it. Maybe we can videotape it. But I look to the shelf in a, in a uniquely robust New York liquor store and I say, what will appeal to this guest and what speaks to me? And I knew you were from New Jersey. I didn't know that you didn't drink, but it was a Hudson. I drink. I yes. just don't drink often. Yes, to thank excess. you. I, yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. So uh, the the Hudson New York corn whiskey. Yes. And I also picked it, quite frankly, because it's a powerful, sturdy bottle. Jesus Christ. And you are a powerful, sturdy man. <laughs> and uh, it, it kind of looks like moonshine. And it is, it's, it is for, by the way, 46% alcohol yeah, per it, volume. It packs a punch. Yes. It has lots of surprises, which you do as well. So I thought, please enjoy that on Festivus. <laughs> and I, I, Thank I, you, brother. There was one other piece. Of, uh, you know, did you shoot, you shot a Nickelback video. I did. Did you shoot the Nickelback video before or after they were single-handedly the only ones that have been successful in having Twitter remove a, a Trump tweet? I, I, that's not right. A, right. Yeah. So, it was long before long that. Long before, but right? I had no idea the level of vitriol that Nickelback somehow inspires in some people. I got more hate mail <laughs> for that innocuous little video. It was great. It's such a lovely I've video. It's such career. a beautiful video. It was a sweet song. You play a barista, and then yeah. you play an evil barista. And, and I had Brooke Burns staring at which I come on. comes rolling in. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I didn't, I was not particularly aware of Nickelback one way or the other. They asked me and I heard the song. That's beautiful. Nickelback is like the mm. Tulsi Gabbard of bands. Yeah. Like inspires, you know, tremendous uh, allegiance among the people <laughs> who love them and vitriol and hate and confusion about yes, others. Sir. Tulsi Gabbard at her best is kind of, for some people, a superhero, like yeah. a Marvel character. And at her worst, she's a Bond villain. Yeah. Right. And Nickelback. It's the silver streak. I'm is pretty that what sure. it is? Yeah. It has that Cruella DeVille thing. But, and that's why she gets the, she gets the bad rap on uh, that. Did you ever go on stage with Nickelback? No, no, I've never been on stage with them. They were not part of the video. But they, they were very, they were the only ones who ever got a Trump, Trump tweet yeah, removed right. by, by, by tackling him on the IP, and they yeah, got him. Right, so I had to bring yeah. that up. Yeah. But um, this conversation has been a tremendous gift to Thank all you, of our friend. listeners. I know they appreciate it. You're a great patriot, Jason. Ah, oh, bless in, you. In the, in the truest sense. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for all that you've done for this country and for the world. Right you have been you. an ambassador for our country. And somewhere to know that your work and your words are circulating around the world to counter so much of the other negative shit that's coming out of this country, I think is, is a, is a, is a solace to us. Uh, um, but this conversation and all your work is a tremendous gift. Folks should follow you on Twitter and in everything else you're doing, but we wish you the very best of happy holidays. Right back at you. And I'll end with the great words of my father, Frank Costanza, serenity now. <laughs> serenity now, indeed. The amazing Jason Thanks, Alexander has been with us. Thank you for tuning I'm packing in. packing up my bag. He's packing up his bag. <laughs> Live from New York at Matador. Ho, ho, ho. Yo, yo, yo. You know you need some holiday gifts for Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, all that stuff. Especially if you missed it. 
you can still send somebody a Happy New Year gift. And if you can't afford a Lexus and you can't afford a Peloton, we got you. Go to OscarMike.org and check out the righteous, patriotic spirit of some kick-ass merchandise that's 100% made in the USA by the veteran-owned innovators at Oscar Mike. They believe that staying active and focusing on the next upcoming goal can help anyone realize their full potential, and they want to inspire people to do just that. And Oscar Mike does it with some awesome gear, which includes beanies. You need a beanie. It's cold outside, but the classic knit-style beanies from Oscar Mike have the logo on the front and the logo on the rear, and it's warm. It will keep you cozy, and it is 100% made in America by veterans. They got a whole bunch of stuff that's under 30 bucks that you can buy. They've got hats. They've got t-shirts, which are the most comfortable t-shirts you've ever worn. If you go to oscarmike.org, you can get one of the coolest pieces of gear you will ever find. It's called a lifeline. It kind of looks like a bracelet. It's made from 550 cord, which is 550 pound tested parachute cord that was used in World War II to attach guys to their parachutes. So the cuffs give you about seven feet of usable paracord when they're unwound. So it's not just an all-purpose survival tool. It also looks cool. Don't leave home without one of these killer bracelets if the zombie apocalypse comes or you got to pull your motorcycle out of a ditch or you got to help Santa get out. The 550 cord will be useful for you and the Lifeline Flex will be there. It's made by veterans, 100% made in the USA and comes with some cool colors. Go to oscarmike.org and check out the Lifeline Flex now. And they also have Army Navy shirts, which are now going to be a lot cheaper, especially if you buy the Army ones. But go to OscarMike.org. Check out American-made apparel with a mission. OscarMike.org. OscarMike.org. They've also got some cool gear for Orange County Choppers, for the Paralyzed Veterans of America, for IAVA. And they've got some very cool zip-ups that are on sale for 25 bucks. So go to OscarMike.org. Get some American-made gear that'll keep you warm all summer long and support a good cause. They're huge supporters of this podcast. They're great Americans and they're great entrepreneurs. Support this veteran-owned business and get yourself looking sharp with some really cool gear at oscarmike.org. Especially this holiday season, it's time to turn your anger, your sadness, your frustration, your inspiration into positive impact. It's time to turn your day into Festivus. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. I think Mr. Rogers would have liked Festivus. I don't think he would have liked impeachment, but he would have liked Festivus. And every show, I offer you a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, a positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans, an action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and will make a difference and be a holiday gift to others. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes, integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And around the holidays, we've got to think about others. And Jason Alexander laid out for you a disease you'd probably never heard of. Turning to stone, that's how some affected by scleroderma describe it. It's like having your body turn to stone. Scleroderma is an autoimmune rheumatic connective tissue disease that literally means hardening of the skin. Sclero means hard and derma is skin. And it occurs when your body 
instead of attacking only foreign invaders like viruses or bacteria or abnormal types of cells like cancers, starts to focus on your own body. Fewer than 500,000 people in the United States have scleroderma, and no one knows for sure why or how it develops. Some experts report that six out of seven patients are women. The most common age span to develop the disease is between 35 and 50. Still, young children and older adults can get the disease too. And now you know about it, and you can make a difference. Go to the Scleroderma Foundation at scleroderma.org. It's a tough one to spell. S-C-L-E-R-O-D-E-R-M-A. It's tough to spell, and it's even tougher to deal with. But if you go to scleroderma.org, you can learn more about this disease and how you can help. We'll also put it out on our Twitter and social media and on the angryamericans.us website. But a new diagnosis of scleroderma doesn't have to be overwhelming, even though the disease is complex. The Scleroderma Foundation provides support, education, and research. It helps people understand the disease. It provides medical information and resources and lets them connect with others. They have chapters and support groups all across the U.S., and members of those groups can offer beneficial support and guidance. They also have a national conference and online discussion board. Go to scleroderma.org and try to do what you can. It doesn't cost you much, and just spreading the word about this disease can really help the people affected by it. And just like Jason Alexander, you can give people hope, help, and inspiration. And let them know they're loved. And this holiday season, since it's about the love, I got a very different angry action for you. Go watch Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I watch it with the kids every year, and they love it. It was created in 1977 by the Jim Hansen Company and actually premiered on CBC television in Canada. It later appeared on ABC and Nickelodeon in the 90s. It's one of the more obscure holiday movies, but I think it's one of the best. It shares hope and positivity and a sense of community, and it's kind of what this show and what America's all about. It's a pretty simple action. Go watch Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Tell a couple of your friends do the same. And just like this pod, neither one of these actions is going to cost you anything except your time. So invest a little time, spread the love, and make the holidays a little bit brighter for some others and for yourself. And if you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry, be active. Okay, big holiday thanks to a few folks that made this incredible episode happen. Lots of little elves, lots of little helpers who've been helping make this episode and the entire year of shows happen. But first of all, Jason Alexander, a true gentleman, a fascinating guy, and I'm honored and privileged to know him. Just so thankful that he opened up with us and shared his story and shared so many life lessons that I know many of you will take with you for a long time to come. Thanks again to all of you who came out to the live episode taping with Pete Buttigieg. The feedback continues to come in. A lot of folks made that happen. I just want to thank you again for making it a reality. And thanks to all of you who've signed up to join us next year in the future events. Stay tuned for more on that. Thanks to Matador Content and the team over there. Thanks to Jay Peterson and Ariane McCoy for the amazing facility. They let us record that interview with Jason, a really cool spot, but we're thankful to Matador for having our back. Big thanks to my awesome team at Righteous Media, Mighty Mercy Rich, Creative Chris Rosenthal, Radical Roy Velchek. You are a gifted group. 
who give gifts every day. And I'm so grateful for all you do to power this show, all the platforms and content and everything we're doing in the future around Righteous Media. Appreciate you guys so much. Bill Schultz, our Papa Elf. You keep everything moving in the workshop all year long and did so again in this episode. Thank you, fine sir. Big thanks to the elves over at Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. It might be too late to get them for Christmas, but you can get it in the new year and there's free shipping over 60 bucks. Check it out. And it's time to thank a listener. Thank a couple of the reindeer and elves and Santas who make Angry Americans possible. And I always want to thank you for listening. I'll make you famous. And yes, there's still a way for you to call and I'll make you famous. Go to 833-33-ANGRY. That's 833-33-ANGRY or 833-332-6479. Call, leave me a voicemail. Let me know what you think about the show. Let me know what's got you angry. Let me know what's got you happy. And maybe we'll use it in a future show. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. Call anytime and you'll get your chance to sound off on this podcast. And now I want to thank a few good little boys and girls who are on the nice list. They've been working hard in school, doing their chores, and they stopped hitting their little brother. And I want to thank a couple of you before we end the year. First up, Sean Hull. This is a cool dude. Stillwater, Oklahoma. He is a farmer, rancher, marine, husband, American, and he lives in Perry, Oklahoma. He works at Blue Stem Cattle. Uh, it was owned and operated by the Barson family, and it's a ranch out in Oklahoma. So big thanks to Sean Hill, who's been tweeting at me and posting on Instagram. He sent me a note and said, outstanding show, man. I, like you, am an independent. But Pete, he meant Mayor Pete, gives me hope. Thanks for the listen. Stay angry, bro Migo. He told me he's headed on a road trip to Colorado with his wife, and he's looking forward to sharing this pod with her. So happy trail, Sean. Thanks for checking us out. I would love to get out on that ranch at some point and check you out. Next up, I want to thank Charles Sheehan Miles. He's from South Hadley, Massachusetts, and he's kind of a legend in the veterans community. He's an author, Gulf War vet. He founded a great and important group called Veterans for Common Sense. He's a member of the South Hadley School Committee, and he's committed to equity, transparency, and opportunity. He created Veterans for Common Sense back in 2002. Veterans for Common Sense is one of the first of the new generation, and they've been helping veterans for a long time, and Charles Sheehan Miles was a true trailblazer. He is a legend in the veteran service organization space, and he's one of the first veteran leaders to help me when I got home and when I started IVA, so I'll always be grateful for him. Charles Sheehan Miles is another Renaissance man like Jason Alexander. He is a soldier, a computer programmer, a short order cook, and a nonprofit executive who's also the author of more than a dozen fiction and nonfiction books, including indie bestsellers Just Remember to Breathe and Republic, a novel of America's future. He's a member of the Authors Guild and an association of independent authors. You can check him out on Twitter at Charles E. Miles, M-I-L-E-S, or you can go to his website, which is shehanmiles.com, where he talks about all his work, his audiobooks. You can learn more, and you can find out where to get Just Remember to Breathe. So Charles has been a big supporter of this show since it started, and he tweeted at me last week, Paul Reichoff, Angry Americans, loved the interview with Mayor Pete. Lots of folks are digging the interview with Mayor Pete. Really appreciate that. If you haven't seen it, go back and check it out right now. It's our most popular ever. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, there's full video 
we went all out and shot kind of a pilot. If you go to angryamericans.us, you can see a really cool video of the entire interview. You can see some behind the scenes, some candid pictures, and it'll give you a sense what the Angry Americans events are going to look like in 2020. Um, but big thanks to Charles Sheehan Miles and everybody out there in Western Massachusetts, my old stomping grounds. I love all of you. Next up, Anthony Serio. I want to thank Anthony again. He is in Arcadia, California. He's a huge supporter of this show. He's a combat Navy veteran, political independent. He says, country above party, warrior for the people, truth seeker, father, husband. And he has a bachelor's in East Asian studies and a master's in comp history. He was on a five and a half hour drive. And this is what he tweeted at me. Paul Rykoff, another 5.5 hour drive. And I have now finished episodes 33 to 37. 34 was the best yet with a reality check on how to live and stay positive. He also tweeted at me, go Navy. And he said he wouldn't be mad if Army wins. There's no first or last place when serving country first. He's right about that. Uh, And the Army-Navy game did not go as I planned. The Army-Navy game should have been called the Malcolm Perry game. The quarterback was killer. Uh, He led the midshipmen to a 31-7 win over Army, ending the three-game losing streak for Navy. It gives Navy its first 10-win season since finishing 11-2 in 2015. They've had a fantastic season, uh, and they're going to face Kansas State in the Liberty Bowl. Army ends the season at 5-8. Uh, the first time Army's missed a bowl game since 2015, but it was a great game. It's always a great game. It's about so much more than the football. It's a great display, and I'm proud of those guys. Everybody should be proud of those guys. If you ever get a chance to check it out, please do. Um, but Anthony uh, said he listened to episodes 33, 37, and 34. 37 was Mayor Pete. 33 is David Bellavia. If you haven't checked that out, he's the only living Medal of Honor recipient uh, to have served in Iraq. Definitely one you want to check out. Episode 34 is Aaron Mankin, another veteran who was burned over most of his body, survived it, and is one of the most compelling, heartwarming, inspiring human beings you will ever hear from. So check him out. Uh, If you want to go back and binge him over the holidays, do that. You can go back and check out all 37 episodes. Uh, Or if you're broke and you need a creative gift, you can send them as your holiday gift, right? They're free. And what's better than free? Check it out. Great for the holidays, just like all of you have been. So thank you for being there for me. Thank you for giving the gift of your time and your focus and your energy. And keep the feedback coming, people. Until then, keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans anytime and sound off. And I'm grateful to all of you. You keep me singing all year round. I'm singing. I'm in a store and I'm singing. I'm in a store and I'm singing. Of course, thanks to my family, my amazing wife, and my two boys. They are exceptionally excited about Christmas. Ryder is really digging the advent calendar, which starts every day off with chocolate, so you can't beat that. Uh, And they're all on the good list this year, all of them. And our elf is named Rocket. And I got to tell you, that shit is killing me. If you have an elf on the shelf, you know what I'm talking about. You wake up in the middle of the night. It's like one in the morning. Oh, shit, I forgot to move the elf. You're scrambling around trying to find Christmas lights, trying to find a place where that damn thing hangs on. Anyway, he's been watching the boys, and they're on the good list, and they are very excited for Christmas. I am thankful to them. Thankful, of course, to my wife. And thankful, as always, to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Please give me a present this Festivus and continue to tell your friends to check out this podcast. Subscribe now. If you're just listening to this episode for the first time, subscribe. Get it for free. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick review. 
It doesn't take more than 30 seconds. You can even write it in all caps like Trump. And subscribe now and you'll have this show hot and fresh waiting for you Thursday morning at zero dark 30, just in time for your Thursday commute to work. And all our archives are there. So go back and binge them if you have some holiday time off. And definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. Follow us everywhere on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. And do go to angryamericans.us and sign up for our newsletter. We're going to have more events like the one we had with Mayor Pete in New York. We're going to take it to other cities around the country. And more good stuff is coming in the new year. And Righteous has other shows planned for the future. So Angry Americans is just a start. Sign up for the newsletter and you'll find out the latest. So stay tuned. Subscribe for free and share. And we will keep this movement growing week by week by week. We're going to end 2019 strong and power into 2020. And despite all the mayhem, we can enjoy the holidays Find the hope, cherish what we've got, and keep the true spirit of the holidays alive. Just like Emmett and Alice Otter. Patience, my brothers, and patience, my sons. Even during Festivus, it's okay to be angry. But especially during the holidays, no, you're not alone. For real. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. But together... We can stick together. We can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. And together, we can also enjoy the holidays. And I wish you a happy Festivus, a happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa blessings to you and yours, and of course, a very Merry Christmas. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Even you, Santa. Stay vigilant. I'm here to understand.